0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Kar Sherif El-Tubki. You're most welcome, sir.
1: Thank you so much for having me again, Paul. It's a pleasure to be back.
0: Sherif is a professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at Brandeis University in the United States. His expertise is in Islamic thought particularly Islamic theology, law, and jurisprudence, and also in the Arabic language, Quranic, classical, and modern, as well as classical Arabic literature and poetry. Now, according to the BBC website, and I quote, June is Pride Month, a month dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ communities all around the world. Unquote. Today, uh, Sheriff has kindly agreed to discuss Islam and LGBTQ, gender, sexuality, morality and identity. That's the title of his presentation. Now, this is now an incredibly important subject for Muslims to understand, because the the West, uh, the media, corporations and governments, now insists that everyone, including Muslims, give unconditional approval to LGBTQ plus people and communities. It's therefore vital that we have an accurate and reliable understanding of what Islam teaches from a respected Muslim academic. We need to ask, how did we get here and realize the importance of getting our conceptual framework right? and explore the islamic paradigm on sex and sexuality so over to you sheriff okay thank you so much for that introduction
1: bismillahirrahmanirrahim um, welcome to everyone here today i'm very happy to be back and to get into this topic which is a very very important topic i don't think i have to explain to anyone why or how important it is hmm. particularly for people who are in the west um, the topic has become one that is pervasive. It is uh, omnipresent everywhere we look, and as we will see over the course of this presentation, um, it is no longer sufficient for religious communities such as Muslims simply to say, "Oh, well, we don't approve of particular behaviors, just like we don't approve of drinking or premarital sex between men and women. We also don't approve of, you know, um, homosexual behavior." Um, the the discourse on the topic has shifted so radically and so quickly over the last couple of decades that, you know, we're, we're basically playing on an entirely different playing field right now. Mm. And there are a whole, there is a whole set of deeply embedded assumptions, which have conspired to make this issue something that is very, very different from a simple judgment as to what is say halal or haram in terms of behavior. Of course, according to Islam, essentially, that's you know what we're dealing with when we're talking about particular behaviors, but there is so much more to the issue than that. Uh, that it is no longer sufficient for Muslims just to stop there, Um, both in terms of explaining our position and our religion, frankly, to those who are not Muslim, and increasingly also within our own ranks, particularly among our youth who have grown up in the Western, Westernized environments. Um, As we will see, the contemporary LGBTQ discourse is um, basically, it's put out as a moral discourse. Um, We are um, given to understand that this is a question primarily of equality, of dignity, of human rights, uh, and so forth. Um, And that if one does not approve, for example, of particular kinds of behaviors or relationships, then one is actually opposed to all of these things that are otherwise wonderful. I mean, we, we, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Mm. give every person his due right. So we believe in giving people their rights. We believe in justice. Justice is very central to Islam. It always has been. Mm. Um, But the, 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 the discourse is put across Uh, in a that defines justice and equality and rights and compassion and dignity and so forth in very specific ways, which actually are at loggerheads with Islamic understandings of these concepts and also make mincemeat, frankly, of traditional Islamic understandings of things like gender, sexuality, uh, sexual moral norms, and so forth. And so we really need to dig deep um, in order to have a proper conceptualization of what it is that we're actually dealing with today, very often you have a, a westernized young Muslim person going to a sheikh from "quote unquote" back home, you know, a traditional Muslim country, and mm-hmm. asking the sheikh, "Oh, I think I'm gay, or what does that mean, or can I?" And the sheikh doesn't just says, "Oh, it's haram." And the child, the the the, the youth is asking about an identity, is asking about feelings, is asking about a political orientation, you know, is asking about many different things. And the scholar is just understanding, oh, he's asking about sodomy, you know, can he have anal sex? Like, oh, in the Sharia, that's haram, you know, end of story. And there's kind of a complete miscommunication because they're coming from two completely different, what are now completely different paradigms of looking at, again, sex, sexuality, you know, uh, gender interactions, morality, what human beings are and what it means to be human. So we're going to dig deep and get into all of this. Before starting, I just want to... Um, to to tell people this is going to be a lengthy uh, presentation. There's also a lot of detail. There are a lot of slides, and the slides have a lot of information. Um, It is necessary, I think, given our circumstances, to take the time to go through and to really understand these issues very deeply and precisely with the proper conceptual vocabulary and the proper terminology. Um, And that is why Paul and I have decided to to give it its due and to really take the time that's necessary. Uh, In addition, I have asked Paul to post the slide deck, um, uh, to connect it to the presentation so that it yep. will be publicly available. Anyone can, you know, download it as a PDF to use it, to review it, um, you know, to, to use it in your own teaching or 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 halakas or study circles or whatever. Uh, I think it's just important that the knowledge get out and that people have access to it.
0: Yeah, so, I think it's going to be an outstanding resource for um, you know the coming months and, and years for people to come back to. It's going to be detailed, thorough. Uh, the presentation, the slides are very professionally produced, obviously, we're, we're, uh, from an expert perspective. So I think this is a, a wonderful opportunity to set the record straight. No no pun intended. Right. OK.
1: All right. So without further ado, um, so the title of the talk, as Paul mentioned, is Islam and LGBTQ, Gender, Sexuality, Morality and Identity. Um, LGBTQ is enclosed in uh, parentheses here, or square quote, uh, sorry, in in quotation marks, um, because I will be problematizing the term itself and the conceptual baggage that underlies it. And again, that's very important to the work that we need to do. So um, if anyone wonders why that's in uh, 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 quotation marks, that is the reason why. Uh, I'd also like to say that this uh, talk today is a kind of expanded version of a talk I gave about a year and a half ago online to a community in Houston, Texas, um, that talk is, if you go on uh, YouTube, you will see it, and it has the title, Gender, Sexuality, Moral- Morality, and Identity in Islam. Um, and it's based on the same slide deck, except this deck is somewhat expanded. And so um, this would be, you know, presumably the, um, the go-to lecture, you know, um, uh, uh, once it's out. Yeah. Um, if you come across both of those, this would be the more updated and the more expanded version. Yeah. Um, okay. All okay. right. Good. Great. So the contents, um, Mm -hmm. we're going to first start by setting the stage. Now is June, the month of June, which has been uh, identified or billed as uh, Pride Month in many countries in the West and also other parts of the world. So we want to just look, you know, how uh, we where we are today in the year 1443 slash 2022. And then how did we get here? Um, And then, as Paul mentioned, the importance of our conceptual framework. This is absolutely critical. Because um, I, as I already mentioned, the language that we use and the conceptual framework that we bear, that we bring to bear on an issue are, are absolutely critical in terms of how we conceptualize and therefore judge that issue. Um, and again, so many changes have taken place deep beneath the surface of our conscious understanding that we have to do a lot of digging and also expend a lot of effort in order to understand how, that we, are, how we are really dealing with two very different conceptual paradigms now when we talk about Islam and an Islamic worldview, in general, and on sexuality and gender in in particular, and the kind of modern, Western, secular, you know, modern slash postmodern now worldview on the other hand. These are two very different kind of uh, approaches, uh, ways of looking at the world, ways of construing reality that depart from very, very different and often kind of diametrically opposed assumptions. And I think the more we realize that, the easier it will be for us in our own hearts and minds to kind of navigate some of these um uh, uh, differences of opinion and clashes, frankly, which which arise and will presumably continue to do so on this issue and others. And so after we um, talk about that, we will get into the Islamic paradigm of on gender, sex, and sexual morality in general. And then we will go into homosexuality and transgenderism in particular. And we will do that from two angles. We will look at the kind of mm-hmm. moral sharia considerations. So kind of what Islam teaches, what the sharia says about particular actions. That's kind of from a sort of objective pers- uh, perspective, if we can say, the way things are in and of themselves regarding the moral valuation of particular acts. And then we will also look at it from, the kind of subjective perspective, what about Muslims who find themselves dealing with same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder? Um, uh, how, how can we understand this phenomenon? How can Muslims in those shoes deal with this in, a, in an Islamic way uh, while staying true to the teachings and the message of Islam? And how can we as a Muslim community uh, support Uh, Muslims who are struggling with these types of issues, which are very real issues and can be very difficult and deep issues, how can we best serve and help our brothers and sisters in their struggle to live their lives uh, in accordance with the will of Allah, as all Muslims are called to do. And Mm -hmm. so, and then we will move on to a summary and conclusion, and then I will go over some resources. Uh, Mashallah, our community has really produced some great resources over the last just half decade, four or five years, five, six years, just a handful of individuals, and we'll see them by the end of this. And so I'd like to walk you through some of the resources so that you know where to go after this uh, talk is over and you, are, and you want to uh, continue your education uh, on this topic and your engagement with it. So without further ado, um, I just want to paint a picture of where we are oh. today.
0: Uh, certainly. So, yes.
1: Yeah. So in terms of literature, we said that kind of presence of of the LGBT uh, narrative uh, um, is everywhere. And so starting with, say, literature, right, uh, we see a significant growth of LGBT literature that is targeting youth specifically over the past decade. So you have this uh, series called The Lumberjanes, which is a popular comic book series uh, consisting of 75 issues that uh, is directed to, to teenagers. And the protagonist is a Navajo trans woman, so a, a biological male who's transitioned to present as female with two gay fathers. So this is a protagonist. Um, in the year 2010, there were approximately 10 books published by mainstream publishers for young adults with LGBT characters in them. By 2016, a mere six years later, the number climbed to 80. So it um it, it multiplied eightfold in mere in six years. Mm. Remarkable. And then you have the annual rainbow book list, which provides updates concerning LGBT books, ranging from infants up until 18 years old. So Infant, there are materials. Infants, yes, yes. Materials now being produced for the youngest of the young so that when people first become aware of their surroundings, there is sort of an LGBT kind of presence and, and, and a narrative that is present in their kind of first uh, um first uh acquaintance with the world uh, if we can say right which is something that was just would have been unimaginable just you know a very short time ago
0: unimagin- oh, yeah. unimaginable now i would say for many people <laughs> <Let's-> yes exactly <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, Mm. And then libraries throughout the country, throughout America, as well as probably other Western countries, now host Drag Queen Story Hours. Perhaps some people have seen pictures of this. So public libraries, um, elementary schools, they bring drag queens. So men who are dressed very flamboyantly as women with wigs and big dresses and makeup come in and read to children. Um, you know and the children have a great laugh and also they kind of become more familiar with and desensitized to uh, this type of behavior which you know until very recently would have just been considered a kind of bizarre fetish that you did in some cabaret in a nightclub on the weekend you know dressing up in drag and, and whatever and now this is being mainstreamed you know for children so this is a very very different playing field even in the west from what we were dealing with just 10 20 years ago um, and things are changing very very rapidly so that's literature enough we go to media we see of the 118 films that the organization GLAD, which is one of the uh, predominant uh, LGBT advocacy organizations, they counted 118 films from the major studios in the year 2019. And 22 of these films contained characters who identified as LGBTQ. So this is 18.6%, which is something like five to six times the percentage of people who actually identify as LGBT in society. Now that number has shifted from, you know, 1.5 to 3% to 5% to 10%. Um, you know, it depends on the way you count what it means to sort of identify as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Some definitions are very loose, um, you know, so we have to take the statistics with a, a grain of salt. But um, but certainly the idea that 20% of characters in movies identify as LGBT is certainly way beyond, you know, um, uh, what we see in, in reality. So there's a sort of overrepresentation, if you will, just statistically.
0: Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Old Line 150 Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions Same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 Plus only, Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. From issuance, please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit Parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
1: Speaking um, that we see in the movies, but this is something that's been, um, been encouraged.
0: But yeah pres presume this uh, this massive overrepresentation of, of people in the films is deliberate policy. This is not just a random statistical fluke, so there's an attempt here to exaggerate to make a political point i I, I assume ultimately
1: one right yes i mean whatever the motivation behind it seems like there is some type of uh something like that afoot here so um and then a new database from insider confirms the existence of more than 250 lgbtq plus characters in children's cartoons dating back to 1983. 1983 is a long time ago so i'm assuming the majority of these are probably the last 10-15 years Um, but 250 since 1983 which is about almost 40 years and if you look at the data from 2010 to 2020 especially the latter five years right um so to f- 2015 to 2020 the representation of overtly queer characters skyrocket so indeed it goes like this and then it skyrockets in the last five years which is right after the obergefell decision is passed in the united states in 2015 which allowed uh, for same-sex marriage across uh, the country um sesame street spongebob and other such children's shows have all had um, openly LGBT characters by this point. If we go now to schools, and I'm just talking about the United States here, California, Colorado, Illinois, and New Jersey, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Washington now mandate specific LGBT education at the elementary levels um, or at some level of, of, of uh, schooling. Um, other states have rolled out in quote-unquote, inclusive curriculum standards, but okay. have not necessarily signed statewide bills, uh, at least not of yet. Um, uh, organizations like the SOGI Education, uh, SOGI Education in Canada, SOGI stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity. Education in Canada are devoted to advancing LGBT education in schools. Um, and many people may have heard of the latest brawl With Disney, the Disney Corporation in Florida, when the governor of Florida actually moved to ban discussion and teaching of LGBT related themes in uh, Florida state classrooms in the first and second grades. So we're just talking about, I mean, first and second grades and before um, and Disney under pressure from certain groups. Um, you know, came out in force and said, we are completely against this legislation. It's homophobic. It's wrong. We're going to throw the full weight of our company behind trying to overturn it. And there's been a big spat back and forth now between Disney Corporation and um, the governor of- uh, It's
0: uh, interesting that that, that Disney has become heavily politicized now. It used to be, uh, you know, I used to watch it for cartoons and so on as a kid, but now it's actively involved in political campaigns to attack politicians and and. Their representatives in in putting uh, forward legislation. So this is extraordinary how politicized corporations, even Disney, are, are these days. Um, right,
1: modern. right. And it's uh, you know uh, interesting that you should mention that because our very next slide, we're going to meet this gender gender person later on in the um, in in the, oh, uh, right. in the presentation. So we'll come back to him or her. Uh, you know the, the person.
0: I noticed the brain of this gingerbread. Uh, firstly, the gingerbread man has a brain, which is I didn't realize they had <laughs> brains. But anyway, uh, this one has a multicolored brain as well. That's yes. something. So.
1: Right. <clears throat> and you mentioned corporations. So, you know, um, going on to, uh well, actually, we'll get to corporations in the next slide, but global affairs. So mm. there's pressure growing now on Muslim countries as well to become, quote, unquote, LGBT affirming. And so you can see here earlier this month, you know, in June Pride Month, the U.S. embassy, uh, U.S. embassy accounts in Muslim countries tweeted in support of Pride Month. And you can see here an example. Uh, The U.S. Embassy in Kuwait, all human beings should be treated with respect and dignity and should be able to live without fear, no matter who they are or whom they love. POTUS, the President of the United States, is a champion for the human rights of LGBTQI persons. Pride 2022, you are included. i I, I was just wondering,
0: is POTUS also uh, campaigning for the rights of of Muslim men to a polygamous marriage? Uh, I presume he's not, as it's illegal in the United States. I don't recall him campaigning for Muslim rights to have quranically sanctioned marriages but anyway that's just my my right,
1: point. Right, exactly and we'll come to the you know also we can look at the language here right all human beings should be treated with respect and dignity and we would agree with that as muslims right we agree with uh, treating people with respect and dignity the idea is that, that how is this understood what do, what do respect and dignity consist of and we're going to realize that a big part of the challenge that muslims face on this issue today is the kind of appropriation of language uh, very um you know, emotively resonant language, like respect and dignity, and giving very specific definitions and meanings to those terms.
0: Yeah, but it's loaded, it's loaded language. It's not neutral language, exactly. it's a descriptive, objective. It's heavily loaded with an ideology. And so it is meant to kind of force you to express that ideology in the very words that's used.
1: Right. And yep. the implication here, of course, is that if you don't, if you're not fully on board with, you know, yep. uh, homosexual behavior, relationships, family structures, and so forth, then you are, you actually lack respect for people's dignity, right? Mm-hmm. Which that's a pretty serious moral charge, right? That's not a neutral thing to say, oh, you don't respect people's dignity, right? That, that's that's a very loaded Kind of moral charge, and this is what Muslims and other kind of more traditional religious believers are facing now. Um, and so we need to understand where this comes from, and also how we can best conceptualize and respond to this. Mm. Um, and so this, uh, you know, movement is also now, in, in some res- in some respects, has become a tool of demonization and even oppression. So APAC, the American Israeli Public Affairs Council, posted a tweet reading, "Do you support LGBTQ plus rights? Hamas doesn't." Hamas discriminates against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people. So the subtext here is that look at those evil you know, people over there who are not pro-LGBTQ, meaning they are not really part of modern civilized society, and therefore Western public should not support them or be sympathetic to their own struggles and their own plights. Right, mm-hmm. in their own oppression, because after all, they're not pro LGBT. Right.
0: But the irony so, here, of course, APAC representing uh, Israelis or, or Jews, the Jewish faith itself, the Jewish Bible, of course, would no way support any of these uh, behaviors. Uh, Cross dressing is is uh, prohibited, uh, uh, sodomy is prohibited, and Leviticus. So the irony is that this is completely contrary to the very Jewish faith that many of their supporters, being Jews, would presumably. Uh, well, a support so there's something very very odd going on there that, that a jewish organization should advocate completely contrary to the jewish faith right. and
1: you know again we'll see reasons behind that you know um, but you're, you're right that it would mm-hmm. seem on the surface to be rather uh, incongruous um, also imams certain imams have been banned from entering particular european countries on account of lgbt critical teachings uh, and preaching, right? So if you say that 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 the religion doesn't allow, for example, um, same-sex relationships or behavior, this is considered hate speech uh, for many people. And so there have uh, imams have been banned, you know, from from speaking in, in this way. Um, okay, so global affairs now. If we move on to corporations, which you mentioned, Paul, uh, this is something which really surprised me when I first came across this. I don't know if people have seen the Burger King Pride Whopper, which was uh, put out by Burger King in Austria.
0: Well, I, th- I thought this was satire. When I first saw this on Twitter, I was convinced this was just a joke because there are satirical uh, organizations. But this turns out to be an actual Burger King advert. Believe it. Yes, or
1: absolutely. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. Um, and so uh, the headline of a story that ran about this reads, Burger King ad prompts apology after Pride Whopper campaign featuring burgers with top and bottom buns <laughs> sparks a backlash. Um, I don't know if people are picking up on this, you know, symbolism here, but obviously you can see the two top buns and the two bottom buns. So it's like same, same, but also top and bottom is a not very subtle reference to the different positions that are assumed in same sex, you know, relationship between, you know, uh, basically anal sex between men where one plays the top role and one plays the bottom role. And, you know. I was wondering when I first saw this top and bottom, okay, do they really mean that? Like that's so vulgar to put on a on a food. You on know, a,
0: hamburger food. Food. Um, where, where a hamburger but where children are gonna buy them you know. <laughs> it's just you know, bizarre.
1: exactly. I was like, maybe they just meant like really the top bun and the bottom bun. But if you read yeah. the, the story, you know, um you'll find that there's there's a difference of opinion. There's like that you know, people. Are, are, have a difference in the like tafsir of this, uh, you know, burger, yeah. this pride <laughs> Whopper, right? And and how to, mm. but it's, but many people say no, no. Obviously, I mean tops and bottoms. Like of course, you know, if you're if you're familiar with kind of gay culture and gay lingo, it's like a very obvious, you know, reference. And so then we read like in this article, the fast food chain's advertising agency issued an apology on Sunday for a much ridiculed, tone deaf marketing campaign announcing the pride whopper, a burger served with two matching buns. Now, you might think, OK, the apology, you know, this has been ridiculed tone, tone deaf that people might have objected to a major, you know, decades old, uh, you know, respected international um, corporation. I guess maybe to say respected international corporation might be a contradiction in terms. But anyway, a well-known international corporation that has been selling burgers to the world for you know decades now and has a big name Burger King, you know, are is now selling hamburgers and naming them with terms that basically overtly reference sodomy acts of sodomy of of
0: male male <laughs> I mean let's call it call, call it a spade a spade here. that's what we're talking about acts of sodomy yeah. um, so if you think about that else. people
1: would be like why are why are we being sold burgers that we're going to eat that are named after you know anal sex and, and but but you would be wrong if you thought that that's why there was offense taken at this in fact, right? we read the ad, quote, includes a burger with two bun tops and another with two bottoms, a seemingly misinformed nod to sex within the LGBTQ plus community. Now, how do we understand this? Within days of the ad going live, people around the globe took to social media to comment on the campaign, citing the chain's failure to understand, quote, unquote, how gay sex works, as well as critique corporate rainbow washing during Pride Month. So the idea is that, OK, in a real, you know, um, Relationship, right? You can't have two tops or two bottoms. The idea is that one person is the top and one person is the bottom. So this misrepresents the male male sexual act because you know you're presenting two tops and two bottoms. Well, when it's well, well, really well, why don't
0: I get my head around So they've been criti- a major international hamburger corporation has been criticized for not understanding the sexual practices of two or three percent of the population. I mean th- th- this is kind of so weird that I I I yeah. can't really not representing anything. it properly in, <laughs> in Not the representing them act properly the in their advertising. If I right. hamburger, <laughs> okay.
1: right? It's a misrepresentation of the actual act, right? Because they don't know how gay sex works because they didn't do their homework and they didn't consult with the LGBT community on it. And that's why we see
0: how Burger King King your homework on this, but anyway, we we'll won't go there.
1: Right. So Burger King Austria, you know, apologized. And so the post, you know, they put out a post, and then the post continues. We've learned our lessons, and will include experts on communicating with the LGBTQ community for future work. As promoting equal love and equal rights will still be a priority for us. So they've learned their lesson. You know, if you're going to be representing, um, you know, male male sex acts in your in in your food products, you need to do so um, accurately, and you need as to- you do.
0: I mean, as you you, have, you know, you mentioned sodomy when you're advertising for hamburgers. I mean, what's 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 to object to that? You know.
1: And then we see again here, you know, of course, the ultimate goal is a promoting of equal love and equal rights. So, again, these terms which, you know, have a lot of kind of emotive baggage, right? Equal love, equal rights, um, which, you know, once you read that, well, who would be opposed to equal love? Who would be opposed to equal rights? And the idea is like no decent person would be. And if you are, then you're not a decent person, right? You're not a moral human being. And then the last kind of um, um, uh, thing I wanted to point out here is... LGBT and Islam specifically. Now, this poster that you see here, you can see the date on the bottom is May 17th, 2022. So um, just last month, uh, this was the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. And this uh, poster was produced under the auspices of a Canadian university and was was displayed within that university and also in a number of high schools in Ontario, Canada. So you can say, see, again, celebrate the power of love right? Uh, the, the constant appeal to love. Um, and then you see these two men about to kiss, you know, a biracial couple. And then you see a couple, a heterosexual cu- couple um, of color. And then you see a, a, you know, multiply abled couple. So someone in a wheelchair and, and then an able-bodied person. And then in the bottom left-hand corner, you see again two, like a biracial Muslim, two Muslim females, women in hijab. And they're about to kiss. Now I blotted that out because many Muslims, rightly so, were quite outraged at this image, and so I didn't want to, uh, you know, um, expose it further. But I did want to just uh, give people a sense of what is actually going, going
0: on. Uh, and America. we know they're Muslim, obviously, because they're wearing hijab, and that's the, they've yes. been uh, targeted for that. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, mm-hmm. again, so the LGBTQ Nation put out a, a they ran a story on this. Uh, university pulls image of women in hijabs kissing after Muslim community protests. So when the, when the image first came out, the Muslim community was very upset. They were very offended. They were up in arms and they started um, And one of them. One person commenter said, shame on you for such an insulting mockery post to my religion. One commenter wrote about the call to quote unquote, celebrate the power of love. Now the university in question initially responded to the post by stating that they understood the image might be, quote-unquote, upsetting to some Muslims and calling the topic, quote-unquote, complex and intersectional, right? But in the beginning, they said they were not going to take it down as the Muslim community continued to protest um, and to sign a petition, which garnered, I think, several thousand signatures in a very short period of time. They actually eventually pulled it down due to Muslim pressure, which I was actually quite surprised uh, yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, this to me, the, the, the remarkable thing about this story, I mean, apart from the sadly predictable poster, is um, the fact that the, the this major institution, this library, did respond to Muslim uh, uh, pushback on this and decided to take it down, and that that is remarkable. I, I wouldn't have expected that, to be honest, in the West.
1: Right. Exactly. And it was not just, you know, it was it was Islamic centers and, uh, you know, private individuals, but also high school students, Muslim high school students in Ontario public schools where this was posted, who staged walkouts and said, we do not accept this because our religion, again, we're looking at this particular act, the act is prohibited by our religion, and it is disrespectful to our religion, and therefore Islamophobic, to try to force Muslim symbols, especially the hijab is like a symbol of purity and devotion, right, and to represent it in a way where two people are who are wearing the hijab are engaging in something that is explicitly prohibited by the religion, as if you show someone a hijab, you know, drinking alcohol or doing something else or a man in a kufi and a beard. You know, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Doing something that the religion prohibits, this would be considered kind of appropriating our religion and in pushing into the service of something which it doesn't actually support.
0: It, it, it does seem to suggest, however, sadly, that there's a hierarchy when it comes to phobias. So at the top of the the tree comes homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia. We should be really, really, really concerned about those. Uh, Islamophobia is not so important because Islamophobia can be over uh, can be accepted as long as it's in the service of uh uh international day against homophobia etc this is a there seems to be a hierarchy here of people you can offend
1: exactly yeah and the um lgbtq nation article it sort of ends dutifully with this with this statement and we will see the you know um, degree of uh uh, you know truth or untruth of the statement as we go through the presentation but they say muslim culture isn't inherently anti-gay the quran says nothing about homosexuality unlike the bible Islamic history is filled with texts openly depicting homosexuality as a beautiful matter-of-fact thing and more American Muslims support same-sex marriage than do Christian evangelicals, Protestants and Mormons according to a Pew research study. Now we notice here, you know, the Bible said the Quran says nothing about homosexuality. This is a, you know, um
0: it's fake news. It's yeah, a, the word uh, doesn't uh, exist. Apart from a Pew Research study, which may be true, the rest of it is fake, is fake yeah. news. Basically, it's basically a lie, basically. Right,
1: and then the text being filled with openly depicting homosexuality. I know what they're talking about, and we can get to this later, but, you know, again... What they mean here by homosexuals is 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 not doesn't really map one to one on what is being discussed here, and you know, and we'll get to this, you know, acts okay. versus desires versus intentions, and so on and so yeah. forth. Yeah. But anyway, you know, they, they end it this way uh, as part of again a rhetorical sort of flourish to show yeah. that Muslims, you know, how does the how does the article start? University pulls image of w- women in hijabs kissing after Muslim community protests. Well, obviously, this Muslim community must just be a bunch of backwards bigots. Because they protested over this thing, which their own holy text doesn't even say anything about. And their own history has celebrated as being a beautiful matter-of-fact thing. So what's wrong with these, you know? Wow, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Right?
1: And so, so again, we have to be very careful of sort of the rhetoric that is used to frame the issue in a very particular way. So this is kind of, you know, where we are today, June uh, 2022. Um, The question is, how did we get here? How do we get here? For young people, this is pretty much all they know. If you're 20 or younger, you grew up in a world where gay marriage was a fact of life, where homosexuality was omnipresent on the television. and you know. But people like me, I'm only in my 40s, so I'm not that old, but this is all very, very new. I mean, I grew up at a time where this was still very, very taboo, and there was a very different conversation about it, which we will also get to as we go through, because, again, there's been a very, very rapid and very radical shift in the discourse, which is important for Muslims to understand if they're going to be able to conceptualize and and respond to this properly. So how do we get here? So this takes us back to the sexual revolution. Now, the sexual revolution begins in the 1960s, late 1960s, and this is sort of the most obvious proximate cause to where we are today. But there are antecedent causes. The sexual revolution, there are, you know, things about it which started to stir in the 1930s, we'll get to this, you know, and then came into full bloom in the 60s. And then even before that, developments that take place from the beginning of the modern period, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries also, you know, laid the groundwork to get to a point where, by the 1960s, in Western culture specifically, the sexual revolution almost looks like inevitable, if not inevitable, like it's just waiting to happen, right? And then it's waiting for a catalyst to happen, and then catalyst comes about. We'll see um, in the form of the birth control pill and other kind of um, social movements that were afoot in the in the 1960s. But it's very important to understand um, the sexual revolution um, as part of this um, as part of this larger narrative. Now, the sexual revolution is basically it represents a fundamental rejection of Christian or more generally Abrahamic religious moral norms surrounding gender, sex and sexuality. So up until the 1960s, at least, you know, the official kind of moral norms in the West were pretty much aligned with with Christianity. Um, Premarital sex was very much taboo. Um, It was not something, you know, living together outside of marriage was completely unheard of in the West before the 1960s, at least in America, I think also in Europe as well. Um, You know, you did not just live with someone of the opposite sex outside of marriage. That was just not done. Like in the Muslim world today, it's just it's unheard of. Like, it's just not done. Nobody people might like have relations, but you don't you know, it's like hush hush. And it's not something that like, you know, that's accepted. And it's certainly not something that you just would do so openly. Um, up until this time also in the 1960s, um, people were very reticent about discussing matters that that, that were related to sexuality, so on uh, on uh, American um, soap operas, for example, in the 1960s, they did not even you could not even say the word pregnant on public television. Mm-hmm. right Now there's nothing really wrong with that for from our perspective as Muslims, but the, the idea was that even that was too forward, it was kind of too direct, you know And so they used euphemisms that a, a woman was said to be, uh, with child or expecting, you know, you couldn't. If you had a movie in the theater where a woman's chest was shown bare chest for like two seconds, it was immediately slapped with an R rating, you know, restricted audiences, no one under 17 uh, without an adult accompanying them, right? This was considered very shocking. Um, at the same time, you know, you have, for example, pornography was completely. Uh, uh, forbidden. It was pr- prohibited by law in the West. And I don't just mean pictures or videos. I mean, also just written like salacious novels, even that like just, you know, written descriptions that were very explicit where actually you couldn't sell them legally in European capitals and in the United States. Um, so what happened? So basically in the 1960s, you get a, a radical kind of rejection of, uh, of these moral norms. And part of what, um, leads up to this is before this time, right? And, you know, at least traditionally in the West and in many societies, you, 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 you have obviously the sexual act is at its core a reproductive act. You know, we can give sex different meanings, you know, we can, we can engage in it for different reasons, whether to exert power over someone or to, you know, uh, as an expression of intimacy or love or pleasure or whatever, right? But in the end of the day, you know, mechanically speaking, it's a reproductive act. I'm talking about the full kind of act between a man and a woman. And, you know, in traditionally, especially before the birth control pill comes out in 1959, there isn't really a very foolproof way of, of contraception. So the idea is that if a man and woman are going to engage in intercourse, then they're always running a fairly substantial risk of the natural consequences of the sex act, which is, which is pregnancy and conception. And you know it doesn't make sense for any society to really have women, you know, um, giving birth to children left and right willy-nilly, where we don't know their fathers, who you know who's going to be responsible for them. They don't have a lineage and so on and so forth. Girls are left to fend with these children on their fend for these children on their own. Anyway, it's a big you know it undermines sort of the very basic structure of society, which is based on the family, right? I mean, the family is the absolute uh, core uh, institution in practically all human societies historically speaking, anthropologically speaking, and even in the modern West, although it's been pretty much destroyed or very much, you know, uh, undermined by this point. But the idea is that sex, because sex and reproduction were so tightly bound together, they also were um, confined at least, you know, officially, so to speak, the official mor- morality and social norms, they were confined to marriage, to the marriage bed, because the idea is that if people are going to engage in activity which could produce children, they should only do that, would only be morally responsible and acceptable to do so if they are in a situation where they are ready to receive that child, right? They can provide for it. The It has a father to provide for it financially, a mother to take care of it, and so forth. Um, Otherwise, to engage in this act, which could bring about children, was a huge thing to conceive a child, right, without being properly prepared to do that is actually, you know, this is actually, it's immoral, it was considered immoral, antisocial, it it, it was a direct threat to the social fabric, which it was, because it undermines the family. And so that's why things like premarital sex were, you know, so, um, uh, so, so taboo. Again, it happened, but it was not the norm. Sometimes girls did get pregnant out of wedlock. They would often disappear and, quote, unquote, go visit grandma for six, seven months, you know, and stay in a home somewhere and give birth to the baby and then give it up for adoption and come back home from visiting grandma, you know, seven months <laughs> later. And everyone kind of knew why and no one really said anything because it was a big, big scandal. Right um so what happens uh so sex reproduction marriage as well as morality so religious morality you know also kind of undergirds this whole system and says because this is the nature of the sex act right which is based on the nature of the male and female bodies and so on and so forth moral norms are such that you know sex should be confined to a particular context and christianity is actually very specific and and quite restrictive on that even more restrictive than, than islam as we'll see but christians are very very specific you know um on this issue um and also in christianity not just catholicism which we know about today this is just the catholic position but until the 1930s you know all christian denominations catholic orthodox and protestant they were actually opposed to uh contraception because oh, the right. idea was artificial contraception, artificial contraception yeah. yes because the idea was that it would mm-hmm. it was unnatural to artificially separate the sex act from its natural consequences which is uh, possible reproduction and insemination. And so, in in the 1930s, it was, uh, you know, uh, in America in the 1920s, and in England and other places, contraception was actually illegal, and it only became legal in the 30s, and you had certain Uh, protestant denominations that came to accept it as a morally viable thing for christians to do i mean this is hard for us to imagine that you know even protestant mainline protestant christian churches did not accept even contraception here in the united states until 1965 contraception was illegal in the state of connecticut you could not buy it now again for us as muslims contraception is actually legal and and you know (laughs) for a married couple, I mean, sex is only legal for, you know, for a married couple to begin with, but, you know, it is actually, um, you know, we do have more latitude on that as Muslims than the traditional Christian position. But um, at least in the West, this kind of acceptance of artificial um contraception is, I guess, the beginning, you could say, of this, the beginning of the separation between kind of the sex act and what tends to be its natural outcome. And then, you know, what kind of Contraception did they have in the 1930s? It wasn't necessarily that reliable yet. Condoms, they were not very good. But this, the game changes radically in 1959 with the birth control pill. So the birth control pill was first marketed maybe 58, but I believe 1959. Anyway. And for the first time, people say, aha, now we have basically, if you take it every day, you know, it's basically a foolproof, foolproof way of. You know of, of birth control, so now we can just now we can really kind of just separate sex from reproduction. And if we can separate sex from reproductive consequences, then why should it be confined to marriage anymore? When those consequences are not necessarily there, and so that old moral norm, which demanded that these all be tightly, you know, bound together doesn't seem to make much sense to people anymore. Now, I don't mean to imply that this was just because of the pill and birth control. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more that drive social change. And we're going to look at some of those factors also in a minute. Um, this the, the birth control pill became available all over the world, not just in the West. And it did not provoke, we did not, did, did not see a sexual revolution take place in the Muslim world. We did not see a sexual revolution take place in China, for example, right? So in the West, there were other, uh, major transformations that had taken place, where all the dominoes were sort of in
0: place, this and, is it so, it was just happen,
1: and it needed a final catalyst.
0: You and know, it's-, just say it's very interesting about China, because China is officially a communist state, uh, and, and so you'd expect, perhaps, that um, a communist society would naturally ally itself to more libertarian and progressive movements like we have in the West. But China is actually a very traditional society uh, when it comes to gender relations and sexuality, So um, there has to be something else that's going on in the West, so it's not just the advent of the pill and the availability of artificial contraception, there are other factors at play because these are right. all been available in China without the, the social revolution that has, ca- ha- has happened in the West. And uh, I think right. it's very yeah. interesting that a, a communist society can still be very traditional and a, a, a capitalist society in the West can be very uh, extreme, extremely individualist in its right. approach to relationships. Well, capitalism
1: and individualism anyway, they go hand in hand from the beginning, mm-hmm. right? So that, that's, uh, and what you say is very true. And also, you know, so I can stress that, you know, so far I've just given kind of purely sociological reasons as to why, you know, kind of premarital sex was considered so taboo before. Um, but there's more to it than that. I mean, that's just a purely, so, that's on the purely sociological level. That's a very important level. It's also important in Islam. I mean, the protection of lineage and families, one yeah. of the central domains of the sharia, and we will see that in a yeah, future slide. Um, yeah. But also there's there's just pure moral considerations, right? Because what we do with our bodies, the way we behave, how we act, it has an effect on our souls, on our immaterial souls. It has our effect on our human dignity. It has an, a, a, an effect on our relationship with our creator right it goes beyond just pragmatic so because so much of this had taken a hit in the west in the traditional religious world it had been undermined right um, it seems at least the way i interpret it is that uh, you know by the 1950s and 60s this sort of older morality was just hanging on by a thread and the only reason people didn't like burst through that door is because there was still this fear of pregnancy so we just all had to hold back but once the pill comes on okay now we can not worry about that anymore let's go ahead and just let loose whereas in other parts of the world okay the pill is available but still like in the Muslim world at least when it comes to these types of issues there was still a much stronger sense of like propriety Mm -hmm. in terms of you know sexual behavior and family and so i mean family remains much more central and strong and so
0: there's a theocentric emphasis obviously in islam exactly towards the creator and in the west that has virtually well completely i would say vanished where there's a great emphasis on the dunya on the nafs on individual desires and 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 uh, pleasures and so on. So uh, for me, it's ultimately an existential and metaphysical question that, uh, about the uh, existence of God and a religious vision of life and to whom one owes one's allegiance and one looks to for guidance and and. And how to live one's life. And the West now has chosen a completely irreligious secular path. But of course, right. Muslims, by definition, haven't. And they, they still retain that fundamental vision of life as orientated to the worship and following of God. And of course, that that is stable and enduring and leads to success in this life and the next. The West doesn't, it's a dead end, I would argue. It no longer has a vision to pursue anymore.
1: Right. That's very mm. beautifully said, mashallah. <laughs> very nicely said. And I agree with, I agree, you know, 100%. You agree. That's yes, yes. good. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so great. So moving on. Um, so um, so what we see then, so the separation of sex, reproduction, marriage, as well as morality. So these were tightly bound before, both by, you know, kind of nature, the nature of the act, as well as, you know, by, by morality. But now, as of the sexual revolution, I always say the sexual revolution comes like, like splits the atom. And these three, four things, they just all take off in their own direction as free, free floating variables. So sex is now just its own thing. It's not tied to reproduction anymore, not tied to marriage, not tied to morality or what God has said or legislated, right? Now we can make of it whatever we want. Okay, Um, and so this is also important in the sexual revolution. And we will see um, in the next slide. So this idea of separating these three things is very, very important. We're going to keep coming back to this over and over again over the course of the talk. And also, there are three other things which are separate, which the West then amalgamates, which is also very problematic. And we'll see that and come back to it several times. But we'll get to that in the next slide. So what is the um, what is the fallout of, of of this? Um, what is the fallout of this? The sexual revolution, we said, um, you know, brings about basically a wholesale rejection of Christian moral norms. Um, for the first time, it become, people start openly, um, when I was young, they called it shacking up. Right. Which was a boy and a girl, man and woman living together outside of marriage. I mean, I was young when that was still very, very new. And I remember people saying, oh, they're shacking up. They're living in sin or, oh, you know, it was something very novel still. And many people were like opposed to it because they thought, well, that's not right. And people used to think, oh, you know, okay, some people, many people thought, no, you still have to be married, have sex. Other people, well, no, you don't have to be married, but you have to be in love. And then other people, you know, and then slowly but surely, like it doesn't even take that long, you know, marriage leads to, quote unquote, just love and commitment, love and commitment to, well, okay, well, as long as you consent to it, no problem, right? So by the 80s or whatever, you know, you go like very slippery slope very quickly. It's just like nothing matters anymore, but Mm -hmm. consent. As long as the people are not being forced and they consent, there's no more uh, specific moral code or any specific moral standards that apply to sexuality, qua sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. So there is no sexual morality at all anymore in the modern world. It's just consent, which is a complete disaster and has nothing to do with Islam. I mean, it's nothing. (laughs) The Islamic paradigm is completely separate on this issue. um, But, you know, this is kind of the world that we are uh, living in. Um, Okay. And so what what are some of the fallout of this? So we see uh, in the wake of the sexual revolution, we see a huge uh, increase in divorce, which also was very taboo in the West and, in fact, illegal also in some places.
0: Yeah, yeah um, that's true. Uh, we, we forget how taboo divorce was and how rare it was, even within our own living memory. But now it's kind of, uh, you know, no-fault divorce, not a problem, um, or the, almost the disposable relationships now. And the idea you may go through <clears throat> serial monogamy, uh, as, I, as some people call it. So we're <laughs> against polygamy. T- polygamy is a really bad thing. But serial monogamy is okay. So you're having multiple partners, but just in a slightly different way. But that's acceptable. But polygamy isn't.
1: Right. And I remember, again, Mm -hmm. growing up just in the 80s, you know, I think when I was in third grade, there was one kid in our class whose parents were divorced. And Mm -hmm. that was like, like a big deal. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's so rare. And, um, you know, 10, 10 years later, everyone else's parents were divorced too. And then also new at that time, right. Is children, you know, because of course with the sexual revolution, part of it in the sixties was also second wave feminism and this push for women to leave the home and to, you know, sort of prioritize career over family and kind of, um, you know, be on a par with men sort of in the public realm and so forth. And what this led to is that now you have empty homes because the man is out working and the woman's out working. So For the first time en masse, especially in like the middle classes and upper middle classes, you know, um, of course, you know, in the poor classes, women have always worked because they've had to. But in these other classes where women, you know, before could stay home, you know, be supported, um, you find now uh, children for the first time coming home now after school and no one's there. And we had a name for that back in the 80s, which was latchkey children and probably the younger members of our audience won't know that term but we knew that because that was a new thing again in the 80s latchkey kid was a kid who was dropped off by the school bus at 2 30 or 3 and went home and actually had a key to his house and had to like open it on his own he's a latch because there's no mother there to well you know there's no mother in the home anymore so it's a latchkey kid and that latchkey kid phenomenon was something very new anyway so you see also a huge uptick in uh, divorce uh, let me go back to my slide here um you see a huge uptick in divorce. There's a demise of the nuclear family. And this brings about with a huge social dislocation. So there's a, a, a an immense rise in fatherlessness. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when people divorce, you know, they don't often stay in the same location. Men sometimes, you know, just abdicate all responsibility and take off. They're not really bound anymore by that. The marital bond or legally bound to the woman and child other than to sort of pay, you know, uh, alimony and child support. But in terms of being present, you know, there's there are many, many homes don't have fathers. And there have been so many studies on the, how disastrous it is for children, both boys and girls, not to have a father, right? And we live in a society which demonizes mm-hmm. men, right? But men, the presence of a man in the house i not saying, I mean, some men are, are tyrants, but in general, the presence of the father in the home, a strong father figure is very, very critical for the health of children and the stability of children and therefore of society, right? And so yeah. this rise in fatherlessness is correlated with a rise in delinquency, yeah. um, also, of course, a rise in single motherhood, and then also single female poverty because it's these single mothers who are left with these kids who are often left fending for themselves working and trying to raise them at the same time without the help of a father um, you know materially and also sometimes financially as well. Anyway, so you have a lot of, and so when you look at the, you know, are families perfect? No. Are we saying that, okay, before the 1960s, everything was hunky-dory and ever, of course not. I mean, the the, the idea is that the world is not perfect. This is not Jannah, it's not paradise. But the question is, what is the arrangement that is going to lead to the greatest amount of kind of human success, possibility of human flourishing, both again, physically, but also emotionally, morally, spiritually in this life and the next. That's what Islam is going for. And the idea is that a strong, stable family unit is absolutely critical for that. It's critical for the stability of society and the health of society in aggregate and for individuals. And because sexuality is so tightly bound, we'll see this later on too, because it's so tightly bound to the family uh, system, that is why norms surrounding sexuality are so um stringent and really any society i mean i'd say sexuality is so central to who we are as human beings right and this is also a big part of the lgbt discourse. so central to who we are as human beings individually and collectively that no one is really no one is really um truly nonchalant about it whatever moral norms you or your society hold about uh sexual norms you tend to feel them very deeply and very viscerally so mm-hmm. if you grow up in a you know a society where monogamy is the norm or, you know, heterosexual norm is, is, is the norm and so forth, like in the West until recently, then you have like a very strong reaction against things like homosexual. it just seem like very bizarre and very weird and very like wrong. Now, if you grew up in the contemporary West where homosexuality and heterosexual have been equated and all of the relevant differences between them have been you know done away with or denied or whatever and you don't see why there should be a distinction you're going to feel really strong about why are you discriminating against you know same sex relationships or but but people tend to feel very strongly about it because sex is very important it's very powerful and it's very central to to human life it's not something that really any society including and, modern and, and
0: also i think that the, the new you've got, you've not called it by its name wokism or the new i think it's yeah. a religion anyway it's not just an ideology it has the characteristics of a religion so it, it has its fundamental creed it has it has its uh sinful aberrations you're not allowed to commit heresy in other words disagree with it and so it's not just that sex, sex is a powerful and emotive subject. Yes, of course. But also ideologically, it has the characteristics of a religion with all, with all that means for uh, the other and the demonization of a heretic. And and, and of course, in a Christian West, a, a post-Christian West, what did you do with heretics? You persecuted them or you executed mm-hmm. them so that this kind of binary kind of thing is very strongly in American post-Puritan culture, I would argue. is mm-hmm. also still here in, in England or, and, and in Europe. Um, you you have this kind of quasi religious uh impulse which is also infusing this wokeism, which i think is a quasi religion
1: right and you're right about that and there a lot the lot can be said about it. i mean there, we could have a whole separate oh, yeah. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. talk about that but but yes you're absolutely right and that that's a big big issue too that you know um that that really influences a lot the way this kind of um uh, discourse uh is deployed and 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 uh, takes place in the current uh in the current scene, so um, yes. So back now to this. So all right. So what does this have to do with LGBT? Right. What does this have to do with LGBT? So the idea is that you know it is in the midst of the sexual revolution and the rejection of the traditional norms and the breaking up of sex from reproduction, marriage, and morality. It is in this sort of you know context that uh, something like uh, that that you see arise in the visibility and prominence of homosexuality and gay rights, or the gay rights, or the gay, you know the gay liberation movement which basically rides on the coattails of the sexual revolution. Cause again, think about it. If sex is now its own thing and it's not necessarily tied to reproduction, marriage and religious morality, then again, so what is it about? Well, it's about pleasure? It's about, you know, relationships. It's about fulfillment. It's about romance. It's about, you know, a lot of other things. And if that's really what it's about and not about these other things, then okay, well, two men can love each other or two women. And, you know, all of those other things, they seem to apply more on a par Right. If you take the reproductive and the family and the moral, traditional moral, moral morality aspect out of it, all of a sudden, you know, homosexual and heterosexual relations seem to be much more commensurate. And so people start to see, well, okay, well, why should we accept one and reject the other? And then, of course, it was clothed in terms of, okay, this is a minority, statistical minority, and on the right, the 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 also coattails of the civil rights movement, especially in the United States, with you know African Americans, Black Americans, and so forth. The idea is, okay, well, we're a minority too, and we'll get to this later because there's an equivalency that's very strong, and this is part of wokeism specifically, you have gender, you have race, gender, and sexual orientation, sexuality, right, LGBT, and these are all equated, and this is something which, again, for us as Muslims, these are all three completely separate things, I mean, race is one thing, and the way the religion approaches it is like very, one way, gender is very different from race, and sexuality and sexual, uh, sorry, like sexual behavior, which is what the sharia is concerned about here is yeah. completely different so these are three completely different things yeah, yeah, that yeah. have literally nothing to do with each other but in the contemporary west they're all just thrown together as like minority rights i mean women are not a minority but like say you know you have racial minorities sexual minorities and then women you know the idea is that okay historically you know they've been sort of the underclass and so all of these are sort of three underdog classes and 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 so they're all equated and you're either on board for justice and for everybody, or, or, or you're just incoherent at best and immoral and bigoted at worst. And again, this is not a paradigm that's really going to work at all um, from a Muslim perspective. And we'll see this as we as we go on. But it's important to realize that, again, that's a very, very strong motif in our contemporary society. So all of this, of course, puts all traditional religious believers in a difficult position. I put traditional in there because, you know, in the wake of the sexual revolution, many, many denominations of mainstream um, Protestant Christianity in the West, as well as you know, uh, certainly Reformed Judaism, as well as you know, conservative Judaism, which isn't really all that conservative, you know, have have really taken on the basic assumptions of the sexual revolution in terms of gender norms, gender equality, also in terms of you know um, the sort of elective nature of sex uh, that, that you know we do have the right to just kind of you know have sex whoever whenever we want as long as it's you know consensual and so forth and and so um, but I'm talking about traditional. Uh, religious believers so traditional catholics traditional orthodox christians as well as traditional protestants evangelicals and others and muslims as a whole you know uh, have not really conceded as as a body and so muslims are sort of um i always say i mean islam altogether is orthodox more or less i mean the 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 mainstream mainstream islam is orthodox which is not necessarily the case at least in the west in some of these other traditions although it is outside of the west and that's why you see The Church of England and the Episcopalian Church, which is the American branch of the Church of England, has really been split apart on this issue because they have so many bishops that come from Africa, where, again, socially speaking, like, they're just not on board with this. And they have a different social context. They did not go. The sexual revolution is very specific to Western culture. It's not a global phenomenon. And so those bishops are like, forget it. We're not endorsing gay bishops and homosexual marriages in our churches in Africa, like you've got to be crazy. And you have your northern Europeans, Swedes, and England, and you know, oh, but f- for them, you know, again, they're they're kind of in having a completely different universe, which has been brought about precisely by, you know, the sexual revolution. And so they say, no, but this is fundamentally unjust and it's discriminatory. And again, it's just, it's totally incommensurate. The paradigms, it's just like talking right past each other. And this is really why it's so important to have this conversation. Um so, okay, so moving right along. So this slide, we're going to see it again. So I'm just going to go very quickly, but it's something I want people to really take home with them. I think it's really critical. If you get this slide, you can, it's the key to unlocking the whole yeah. conundrum that we're in. So modern Western, I should say contemporary Western culture, right? Modern is like a long period. Contemporary is just right now. And this is all very new. Separates three things that are inherently in ex- bound up to each other and should be by nature. And by religious law, we would say as Muslims, right? Allah created us as human beings. it created nature and it with a purpose. He also you know, legislates morality. And so these are coherent and, and in tune with each other. And by both the nature of reality and by religious law and norms, sex, reproduction, marriage, and morality should be bound together. Now, I want to say that also as Muslims, we do not, you know, Islam is the middle position. And I think from a Muslim perspective, Uh, traditional Christianity is a, you know, comes across as a very, what they call sex negative religion. You Mm -hmm. have Augustine in the fourth century, right, who was a licentious man before he became a Christian. But once he became a Christian, he was so disgusted with his previous life of profligacy that he he took a very, very negative view towards the body, towards sexuality. Also, there's a very heavy platonic and neoplatonic influence, which also very much downplayed kind of the materiality in favor of, pure spirituality and so yeah, christianity
0: I think, no i think you're right augustine was much more influenced by that the hellenistic greek philosophy than by the hebrew bible which doesn't have any of these inhibitions like the hebrew scriptures the jewish bible in other words doesn't have any of these sex negative i mean the, the, the song of the songs, for example, in the Old Testament, is is very erotic, actually, uh, that, that, almost obscene for some people. But for him, who was much more influenced by Greek philosophy, which uh, with with his denial of the of the body, the uh, seeing the body as a prison, uh, and so to be really close and transcendent, you had to uh, uh, deny the carnal nature, the sinful mm-hmm. nature, which inevitably meant um, sexuality. So, yeah, absolutely right. And Augustine's influence over the Western church has been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal.
1: Right. And it's very important because, you know, again, I think so Islam, you know, sort of understands itself and has been understood as Muslims as being a middle path and, you know, the sort of, you know, traditional Christian view. I mean, Augustine said sex was basically a, a necessary evil, so it's intrinsically yeah. evil because it's of the flesh and the flesh is is fallen, right? And carnal, you know, desires where the trouble began with back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, yeah. you know, anyway, all of the influences that you also just mentioned, it's so it's evil in and of itself, but it's necessary for the propagation of the species. And according to Augustine too, even a married couple should not enjoy They should try to enjoy it as little as possible. It's like, just do what you have to do to like make sure the species goes on, but yeah. you should try to enjoy it as little as you can. So there's nothing in Islam like this. In fact, Sexuality, I mean, Islam has been considered traditionally a sex-positive religion, and by that, I mean, it doesn't look that way from the modern stereotype that contemporary Westerners have. Um, But that's also because the contemporary West has gone from one extreme to quite the other extreme, probably in reaction to the first extreme, partially in reaction to it, but also part of other factors that we'll talk about shortly. Um, But, you know, Islam has never, I mean, sexuality itself has always been considered something pure, good, you know, holy, if you want to put it that way, but, 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 but in its proper context. I mean, so Islam is very, very strict about, you know, illicit sex. It takes a very strong position against it, but within the proper context, which is basically the context of marriage between a man and a woman, right? That in that context, it's actually considered an act of worship. And the Prophet, as, as we know, peace be exactly. upon him, he said to his companions, "You will be rewarded for, you know, for coming unto your wives." And they said they were surprised by this, and they said, "What? Why would we be why would we be rewarded for simply uh, taking care of our desires?" And he said, Did you, Do you not see that if you were to take care of your desires in an illegal way, that you would be punished? And they said, Yes. And he said, Well, therefore, if you do it in a, in a permissible way, then you will be rewarded, right? So you actually get reward. And so, you know, having relations with one's spouse is considered an act of worship. One is supposed to be in a state of ritual purity, although the act itself vitiates the ritual purity, but you're supposed to get into a state of ritual purity before because it's as if it's an act of worship. And in Islam, even the sunnah at the moment of climax will just be explicit. One should say, Allahu Akbar, right? Which is to remember god because it's his blessing that one is able to experience this and our scholars consider that a foretaste of the pleasure of paradise because it's the greatest physical pleasure at least that that human beings typically can experience in this world and for many people especially even post christian westerners it's just completely you know um they can't wrap their mind around okay maybe we're cool with sex today we don't have these hang-ups but we've also thrown off christianity But if you want to tell me I should remember God while having an orgasm, I'm sorry, like that just doesn't compute, Mm -hmm. you know, for for even a modern, again, post-Christian, it's like religion is here and sex is there and it's it's, never the
0: twain twain shall meet. The largest church in the world is the Catholic Church and all of the leaders of the Catholic Church are celibate men. uh they've never had they they just don't do this at all it is completely so that's even now even though the church is more sex positive it's still in practice is led by celibate people people who've renounced uh sexuality completely and then compare that with the the prophet of islam upon whom be peace who had a number of wives and and had the teaching as you just said it's it's integrated in a very positive way in the life of muslims
1: Right. And also, you know, it's important to know, so Hmm. celibacy has always been considered a very high calling in Christianity. Now, Christians have understood that it's not for everybody. In fact, it's not most people's calling because it's very difficult right? But if you are able to do it, and if you are, quote unquote, called to, or you have a vocation to celibacy, that's considered very, very high. And that's why the religious leaders are expected to to sort of rise to that vocation. Of -hmm. course, the central figures, you have the Virgin Mary, whom we also believe as Muslims was a virgin when she gave birth miraculously to Jesus, even if she married thereafter. So she's a central figure. And then Jesus himself, you know, we don't, as far as we know, never married. So he was presumably a virgin, too, I mean, because he never married. So your two central figures are people who were, you know, sexually celibate, at least Mary until, until and, and These are
0: role models uh, of a Christian. These are role models. Uh, Jesus right. and Mary are role models, and in both of them, uh, uh, it would seem, were, were completely celibate. So, you know. And
1: very interestingly, the Qur'an affirms Mary in her miraculous conception of Jesus as a virgin, mm. but it doesn't say that she remained a virgin her whole no. life and the new, muslim...
0: new testament doesn't say it either it just I mean it's it actually that, that she went on to have many children because jesus had many brothers and sisters uh, right. biological not just in the extended sense but in the, in right. the um, biological yes through her right and i'm not
1: aware that muslim sources you know think believe that jesus got married either so we probably believe that he didn't i mean i don't know if i've never heard anything to the contrary no. but nevertheless Right. And although Jesus, of course, a very, very highly, you know, one of the greatest prophets in Islam. Right. You have the, the five Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus and Muhammad, peace be upon all of them are the five greatest. Um, never. I mean, the Quran explicitly repudiates the Christian idea of uh, of uh Monasticism. It says, la rahbaniya, the Prophet peace be upon him, la rahbaniyata fil-islam, there is no monasticism in religion. And Allah Allah says in the Quran, we read in the Quran, wa rahbaniyatan ibtada'uha ma katabnaha alayhim, uh, you know, monasticism which they, uh, um, that they innovated that yeah. they introduced as a as a um no divine a,
0: warrant for it at all Yeah at all.
1: exactly as a reprehensible innovation in religion that we meaning god did not prescribe upon them So anyway so Islam you know and you also find like obviously descriptions of paradise in the Quran do very strongly suggest that you know um, people will have uh, enjoy sexual congress in paradise in addition to the other types of bodily pleasures that are mentioned like eating and drinking various you know delicious fruits and foods and reclining on uh you know um, on sofas of silk and and so on and so forth and then the greatest uh par- the greatest uh uh, pleasure of paradise, of course, is the vision of God himself, right? The Ru'ya. But nevertheless, the Quran, you know, doesn't really have a fundamental problem with these sort of the physical aspect of being, but it brings it under the divine law and the divine ruling, and it dignifies it and sanctifies it by making these bodily functions, so to speak, um, a, a concern, uh, you know, part of the divine concern, shall we say. So, Islam kind of, some have said that, you know, uh, I remember Christopher Hitchens once said, "Oh, Islam is very grubby. It's like kind of in the dirt." He said. I mean, he was an atheist, but he he was very anti-Islamic. You know, I mean, very. <laughs> uh, he was. I remember he's very pro-Bosnian back at the time of the war. But so, but you know, that was not a religion. He was very critical of the Islamic religion. Um, but but what he meant, he said, it sounds like very earthy, and I, I think even though he's an atheist, he's still coming from this kind of Christian background. And what he doesn't realize that for a Muslim perspective, Islam is actually, you know, the the, the companions, they, the the disbelievers of the Mecca said, "Oh, your prophet even teaches you how to go to the bathroom because in Islam we have to clean ourselves a particular way, use water and so on and so forth. Like you don't just do it any way, which way because cleanliness and the waft women and iman, cleanliness is part of faith." And so the disbelievers made fun of the Muslims, like, what kind of prophet is even teaching you how to clean yourself? And he said, yes, that's right. He teaches us even how to clean ourselves because this becomes also an act now that is endowed with significance because there's a proper way to do it. There's a sunnah behind it, a way of following the prophetic guidance. And this is what guidance is all that's comprehensive. And so you have this um, you know, notion that these bodily functions, they have to be, of course, uh, trained and they have to be um Uh, schooled and they have to be reined in and they have to be directed in the proper way, but they are not in and of themselves wrong or bad. And that's why you have Muslim scholars with no qualms whatsoever talking about, you know, these things in paradise and even writing some of the great scholars. I mean, I'm kind of going a little off topic, but again, I think it's important for us to realize from a, a large, because we will be told that we're prudes, if you're not on board with the LGBT, then you guys are just repressing this. No, no, no. Islam very much throughout its history. You know, it's been very open. We have major scholars of the religion who also wrote basically sex manuals. I mean, you know, uh, not just about fiqh, you know, the rulings of it, but how to actually pleasure your spouse and yourself in different positions and so on and so forth, written by religious scholars. You know, this is part of the, of their scholarly output. It's a completely legitimate, you know, uh Subject of inquiry, no problem whatsoever, but within the proper context. So, Islam has always had that middle, I think the Christian perspective was so anti-body, anti-sex, anti, anti, you know, also, I think maybe, you know, quite anti-woman in a lot of respects too, with, you know, Eve was the one who brought sin into the world and so forth, there's nothing equivalent like that in Islam, right, that it went from that to like, you know, sort of the other extreme, and we see that now but you know as muslims i think again muslims especially in the current western environment where we are and we are compared to the current environment we are very strict and quote unquote like prude i mean prude it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad word but very restrained and we have a we have a stern sexual morality absolutely and it's central to our religion but that just means that sexual has to take place in the right context and we're very very insistent upon that but in that context it's 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 a fine thing it's a good thing it's nothing to be ashamed of and that's the proper Uh, balance you know that is that's what we would say as muslims is is the proper balance um all right so Moving right along, so you have this separation, right, of sex, reproduction, and marriage. We'll see this again, and also now coming coming back specifically to the LGBT issue, and we'll see this again too. And we'll go into much more detail that while it separates these three things, which are by nature and in, in moral law and in religious you know prescription tightly bound to to, to each other, it also um, it also uh, amalgamates or puts together three things that ought to be rigorously separate, and which were separate before, in which contemporary Western culture, starting in the late 19th century, started to put together, namely desires, actions, and identity, and desires, particularly same-sex desires, desire, you know, homosexual desires. And when I say desires and actions are put together, what I mean by that is that, you know, because morality is thrown out the window now, religious morality— The actions are seen to flow from the desire. The presence of the desire is sort of where we start. And then if the desire is present, as long as everyone consents, right, then the action naturally flows from it. It's unobjectionable morally because it's simply responding to the desire. And there's no consideration on the basis of which the action should be repudiated in a moral sense, right? So you have desires, actions flow from it. And then this is key. This is absolutely critical. And we'll see this, you know, uh, in a future slide that on top of this is built now an entire personal identity. And this starts in the late 19th century, 1860 or so. The word homosexual is coined in German, homosexualität, and then it's taken, that's actually, you know, a Greek borrowing, but anyway, it was coined first in the German environment and then taken into other languages uh, in the same form, essentially. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a German word for it, but they coined it with that Greek. Um, anyway, and so, uh, and, and so only quite recently in Western society have people started to see themselves in terms of having a sexual identity. And again, very important because anyone who grows up in the modern world will take it for granted. Oh, you're gay or straight or gay, straight or bi, or, you know, and I read all the time, everyone has asexuality, right? Well, which is your sexuality? Well, no, this idea of asexuality, like ity you know, um, as an abstract noun, this is also a new coinage. Like, what is sexuality? How do you say that in Arabic? Like, or other languages, you know I mean? It's It's a new thing. So the idea that even 100 years ago or 110, 20 years ago in the West, if you were to ask an average person on the street, are you straight, they would have said what do you mean am i straight like they wouldn't have even identified as being quote unquote straight no one really identified in terms of being either gay or straight for us again it's so ingrained that you're either one or the other or somewhere in between so you're bi but you are have to be either gay straight or bi well how how come no other culture even has words you know that 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 corresponds any of this because they didn't have the concept you know Sexual behavior was something you did. It was not something you were. And we'll see this very important, right? Even, I mean, people have been engaged in sex, same-sex behavior. I mean, in it, it's, it's attested in throughout history, and we can see it, and we know it goes back at least to the time of the people of, of Lut. Right, and it's in Greek culture. You find it also in Muslim culture. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the actual, you know, culture, of course it existed. It, it's, it's practically universal, not totally, but practically universal. There seem to be some tribes that don't have a concept of same-sex behavior, but this seems to be quite uh, rare. Um, but the idea is that this was something someone. These were something things that people did. It's not something you were. And the uh, the analogy would be other sexual behaviors. For us today, as modern modernized or modern westernized peoples, right? Someone may or may not engage in X act or Y act or I don't know, masturbation or something like that. And you know, whether you do or not, it's like something you either do or you don't do. It's not something you are, and you would never think of identifying yourself based on do you do this particular act or not. And we say, yeah, but homosexuality is different. Well, yeah, it's different to you because it's been constructed that way in your particular cultural milieu at this time and place. But even in the West, until quite recently, no one thought in terms of, you know, of sexual, there was no such thing as a sexual identity. It's all very new and it's all very culturally contingent, historically and culturally contingent. It's very important for Muslims to understand because forces in the West, right, are, they present this as something that is is universal, that is just natural, that is just the way things are. And if you're not on board with this, then you are simply, you know, you're unnatural, like you're going against just how things are, and you're denying reality, and you say, listen, I mean, you can only go back a little bit, and even in your own culture, you have no such conception of this, and so by what fiat, you know, by what right do you sort of, you know, have the fiat to just say, well, this is now a universal truth, okay? Anyway, let's let's go on, because we have a lot to do, and yeah. I want to make sure we can get it's, through it's this. A call, no, yeah. So very quickly, so the sexual revolution, I said, is the most important kind of, and you know, the most proximate cause of where we are today. But the mm-hmm. sexual revolution itself has antecedents. And again, important for us as Muslims, you know, we're trying to get a, a, a large uh, conceptual and historical uh, view of the issue so that we can understand them in their proper context and as deeply as, and as accurately as possible. So Sexual revolution has antecedents, right? This goes back to, you could say, the rise of sort of the modern period, 15th, 16th century, 17th century, particularly with the scientific revolution. Again, I'm not going to say much on this. I have I mean at the bottom of this slide you're going to see a talk I've given on these things in much more detail so I'll refer you to that. But with the scientific uh, revolution in the 17th century you have the rise of a materialistic mechanical view of the world, right? The world is now seen as just being this kind of clock ticking along, material stuff out there and one of the um one of the results of this is that God essentially is cut off from his creation. I mean not really of course because if were not for God's will the whole creation would you know, uh, 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 cease to exist in 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 the blink of an eye. But in people's minds, right, in their worldview, they no longer see God's hand in his creation, right? Whereas before there there, you know, things were created with a purpose and they were given a teleology, a a purpose by God, and they were seen to have a particular nature that was imbued, you know, through divine agency and so forth, um, you know, the the universe as a whole, as well as human beings collectively and individually. And this starts to fall by the wayside in the Western consciousness with the rise of a, a kind of materialistic and mechanical worldview. So you have a loss of inherent meaning and purpose, right? And this is important because if there's no meaning out there in the world there's no intrinsic meaning, no inherent meaning. And there's no inherent meaning in human existence or my personal existence. Then either you live in a world without meaning, which is one of the main themes of modernity. You know, how do we grapple with kind of the meaninglessness of it all, which is why I have so much absurd art and pessimistic art, because people are really staring this meaningless, meaninglessness face, Right. So either there is no meaning or whatever meaning there is, because there's no meaning out there that's been put in it by a creator God, the only meaning that there could be is something that's self-generated. I generate the meaning and I impose the meaning. And that goes back to why we say now, as of the sexual revolution, okay, the male body and female body, they don't mean anything anymore. There's no inherent, you know, compl- it's obvious that they're meant to be complementary. I mean, just, you know, a five-year-old could tell you that. Just look at the bo- one body and the other. It's, it's clear that what was made, meant to go where and how it's all supposed to fit together. But the idea is that there is no more, you know, this is there, this is not seen as like intended, or, or endowed with like an inherent purposefulness or teleology or nature that, you know, that to violate would be a moral violation, right? Your body is just stuff and you inhabit it as this immaterial mind. And it's up to you to like, you know, run your stuff, however you want do with your stuff, whatever you want, and to give whatever meaning to your stuff and what you do with it that you want to right? So you're just sovereign to kind of impart meanings And this is totally different from the pre-modern worldview, completely, you know, alien to the Islamic worldview, obviously, right? But this is sort of very central to the modern consciousness. Um, So that's 17. Now, if we go into the 18th century of the Enlightenment, right? And the Enlightenment is basically puts human reason in the center and makes it the standard of all knowledge, including moral knowledge. Now, what falls by the wayside here? Revelation. Revelation gets discredited. We're talking about specifically the Bible, because that's Revelation for the West, was the, the Bible, the Christian and Jewish scriptures. So this is discredited for, you know, uh, higher biblical criticism, very important here. I know you've had many uh, guests on on here who are world experts who have discussed that issue. Um, also, you know, geological findings, which were incompatible with a, um, you know, a straightforward reading of Genesis. Is the timeline of Genesis, Darwinism in the 19th century is a major secularizing factor, although it doesn't necessarily entail, uh, you know, atheism. Nevertheless, socially speaking sociologically speaking there's no doubt that that you know darwin's theory of evolution had a massive impact on the kind of loss of meaning and sort of religious sen- sen- sentiment in the west there's a book written by uh, Owen chadwick um yes. i believe a british
0: scholar yeah, the, the professor at Cambridge i think yeah yeah, right. the, yeah the
1: secularization of the european mind in the 19th century so it's really the 19th century where the, the all of this stuff trickles down and the average everyday person in the west, mind becomes secularized. And so at the beginning of the century of the 19th century, you cannot be hired in a university to teach if you're an atheist. Who would hire an atheist to teach people in a university? You know, it's just considered so, you know, deviant and and you know immoral. Where do you get your morals from? You don't believe in God, you don't believe in an afterlife? How can we trust you? And by the end of the century, you have Nietzsche famously declaring again, blasphemous from a Muslim perspective, quote unquote, God is dead, right? And in, in, in the space of 50, 60 years. Right. So anyway, let's jumping ahead. So nineteenth century. So then we so we have The rise of the materialistic mechanical worldview, um, pursuant to the scientific revolution. You have the Enlightenment of the 18th century, then liberalism. You know, all of these are humongous topics. Obviously, I'm just giving a very, very quick, you know, overview. Liberalism in the 18th, 19th century classical liberalism. Liberalism it sees it puts a premium on human individual freedom and personal autonomy. And this, in a sense, makes sense. Okay, if there's no God anymore, really, in our consciousness, and the world is just there now, man rises to the top. Right? This is kind of the deification of man. Mm -hmm. So we are at the center. We are sovereign. We can rule the world. We're no longer standing under a God. The world is not standing. We are the masters. We're in control. And we demand absolute, you know, maximum freedom and and, and autonomy as a species to do whatever we want, you know, to the planet, with the planet, whatever. And also in our own societies to, um, you know, structure them the way we want in our own lives as well. We have this ultimate freedom and autonomy. So Freedom, of course, everyone you know um, appreciates freedom when you talk about political freedom from tyranny and so forth and oppression, of course, but the modern psyche has a very particular notion of freedom, which is much goes well beyond that. It's almost a fetishization. I am here. I am born to be absolutely as free as possible from all external constraints, be they moral constraints, religious constraints. The ties of family, the ties of tradition, the ties of society, right? Every, you know, such tie is just a barrier that is meant for me to break in order to actualize my own self. So the self-actualization, the self-realization. And we'll see again a little bit more in detail where this comes from. This is absolutely critical. And this is very deeply embedded in current discourses surrounding sexuality in general in the West and homosexuality and LGBT in particular. And again, these assumptions lie so deep beneath the surface that we are really not aware of their presence because they're, they're so buried And they've impacted our psyche so much that we just, oh, of course, like that's just natural. You just think that's the way the world has always been. That's the only way to see it. You don't realize that this is actually just a particular way. I see the sun reverberating on my face. So excuse me. Um, So you have that. And then again I, I will refer you to a lecture i gave uh, that goes into this in a lot more detail it's called negotiating paradigms islam in the modern Worldview." every blue uh title you see in this presentation is a, a hyperlink so um again i this slide deck will be available to you and you can just click on the uh, uh, on the blue links and they will take you directly to uh what they're connected to um sexual revolution antecedent very very quickly um there's a great book that came out in 2020 The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Mm -hmm. Carl Truman. There's a subtitle which is quite long. It's something like uh, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the, the sexual revolution, something like that. It's so quite
0: a, quite a jawbreaker for Yeah, exactly.
1: So this is a very, very good book. And also just this year, I mean, literally in March, he came out with a abridged version of it called Strange oh, New right. World. But if you can read the original, I would definitely do this, maybe 400 and some pages. It's quite a thick tome, very, very well done. But for more of a lay audience, so to speak, I mean, he, there is a, a 180 page kind of, uh, you know, a uh, 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 digest of it, if you want, with the main points. Uh, And so, I'm taking this, you know, uh, what what I'm presenting on this slide is is taken from uh, from Truman. So, he traces back to Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who, of course, is a Genevan Swiss uh, um, uh, uh, philosopher and man of letters uh, of the 18th century. So, his dates are 1712 to 78. And very quickly, so Rousseau locates identity in the inner psychological life of the individual. So this is what Truman says is the beginning of the psychologization of the human being, right? So um, for Rousseau, feelings are central to who we are. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's like this is the air we breathe. Authenticity, another very important word for the modern individual, authenticity is tied to the outward expression of inner feelings, right? So who I am is not You know the role I play in society, which in other society, okay, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son. Who I am is the roles I play. No, who I am is my own private, personal kind of inner feelings. That's the primary locus of who I am. And to be authentic means that I live outwardly exactly in accord with my inner feelings. Mm. Now you can say fine, but your inner feelings need to be controlled, and they need to be, you know, um, again uh, um, uh, molded, and they need to be shaped, and they need to be trained right? And, and Rousseau probably would have agreed with that. But again, the seeds get set. And then as this idea develops, it becomes more and more like whatever I feel inside is who I truly am deep down. And for me to live authentically, I must be able to live outwardly how I feel inwardly. And any discrepancy between the two is a lack of my proper self-realization. It's a lack of my becoming fully the human I am supposed to be, or I am deep down. And you can hear in this resonances of what we hear around us today, especially in with transgenderism, right? Okay. I have a male body, but I, I am a woman, not, I feel like well, I'm a woman, but I'm not. So I feel like that way there's, there's an issue, but I actually am a woman because if I feel like I'm a woman,
0: yeah, right?
1: Because yeah. say, but wait a minute, but you've got a male body. So are you a woman or a man? Well, this is a metaphysical question. People have to realize this. It's a metaphysical question. What role does the body Have to play in the definition of who you are, and what role does the mind, the inner subjective self, play? Right? Is it all the physical and the psychology means absolutely nothing? Is it all psychology and the body means nothing? Is it both? These are metaphysical questions. And the fact that we have gone from, you know, in just a couple years, especially on the transgender issue, you know, 10 years ago, gender identity disorder that's what it was called. That means if you have a male body and you feel like you're a female or vice versa then you have a disorder. Now, we're not blaming you morally for that because it's a disorder. Okay, you couldn't help it, but people recognize there's a disorder. It's not supposed to be the case, quote unquote. If you have a male body, you should identify as a man and feel like a man. And, And if you don't, okay, there's a disorder there. We need to try to figure out what to do, right? That then changes to gender dysphoria. Dysphoria just means, okay, I'm uncomfortable with it. So it's no longer a question of you're objectively like out of kilter or off kilter. Out of sync with your biology, and that's a problem because you're supposed to be one integrated person, right? It's it now becomes okay. Dysphoria. Well, if you're if you're um, uh, uh, troubled by that or uncomfortable, okay, then you've got dysphoria. We'll try to help you. And now, just a couple of years later, even saying gender dysphoria is considered offensive to many in these movements. And the idea is like, no, I am a woman, or I am a man, in the wrong body. Period, right? And the body's wrong. The body means nothing. The objective kind of physiology doesn't matter. It's all the psychology. It's it's all so it's it's the maximum. And so Truman will say, "Well, this is." I mean, Rousseau would have been aghast. I mean, probably, but he would say, "This is kind of the ultimate, you know, logical outcome of this idea of making the internal." You know, given but, such primacy to the internal. But, but this is
0: not really new in the West. We have this idea of dualism, which goes back to the ancient Greeks, where the, the the idea is you have the body and the soul and the soul is preeminently important. That's the precious thing. That's the that's the soul is that which you gain knowledge of the divine and become divine in a way. And the body is seen as like a prison uh, It's called a prison in Platonic philosophy. Yep. So th- this is the old, old hoary notion of dualism, which goes back to the ancient Greeks resurfacing post-Renaissance in Rousseau and his thinking, but it's not really new. It's a fundamental category that we see much earlier in in Greek thought, resurfacing in the modern world, and and is very contrary to the Abrahamic faith. The Hebrew Bible, for example, has a much more um, integrated, holistic understanding of a human being has been uh, one, so a, a part soul, right. part mind, part body, not as dualist, dualism, where it's split apart. Right. Um, so I, I think we're seeing some deep Western tributaries here surfacing up again in the modern times, which are not really new. I mean, OK, they have certain new configurations, but the fundamental metaphysical duality is there thousands for over millennia, I would argue.
1: Right. And, I, and again, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, really like the Arabs say, la jadida there's nothing new under the sun, you know, like it's the, plus ça yeah. change, plus c'est la même chose, right? I mean, it's there there's not, really nothing new. I mean, all of yeah. these ideas, atheism, it's, it's all, you know, just recycled from like the sophists yeah. and ancient, you know, but it takes a different guy. So you're right that you have that dualism, but I think it's given a specific, um, valence in the modern period that, you know, it, it becomes sort of this very specific outgrowth, so to say, of something that had seeds there before, but was also kind of um, balanced out by other types of considerations, which fell by the wayside. And then you get this kind of ex, uh, excrescence, right? This outgrowth of, of of this kind of like very radical internalization and subjectivization and personalization and individualization of the notion of the human being right and this is absolutely fundamental to the modern and this is at the base of people saying well this is who i am right it's not just sexuality right the idea is because you're not anything other than your internal feelings. And, w- and if you're going to deny me that, well, then you're denying me my very humanity. Well, well what's so it makes about sense this, people say that, but the whole thing yeah, it is kind of like, uh, like there's a wrong term been taken.
0: But, but, but but what, what, what's about this is, is that we because we've been here before in some ways, uh, yes, there are unique configurations, as you say, that the West keeps on having to go over the same ground over and over again and relearning the same lessons. It doesn't, it's not, there's no stability or continuity in the Western tradition. It, it's this complex, uh, a composite of different traditions pagan christian jewish uh, and so on and, and they keep on throwing up the same paradigms and we have to go through the same heartache and catastrophe again and again learning the same yep. lesson and, and Islam obviously presents it uh, presents itself as a final dispensation but it events it offers stability and a kind of divine wisdom in the social order so we don't have to keep on searching for solutions to these problems we've got the perfect template which is in part, the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, but also the teaching of the Quran uh, and right. so on. So but Muslims are spared this agony of these convulsions of, going over the same thing over and over again because they have this this is the sunnah i suppose that they can right
1: exactly and that's why the sunnah is so important you know it's 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 really the 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 firm you know in the quran you know uh that that it's the firmest handhold right holding on to the religion holding on to the rope of allah you know hold on all together to the rope of god and do not separate from it yeah do not separate from each other because that is what brings you to safety otherwise you're just going to be adrift literally and drown
0: exactly um, and that's and what, most, yeah. yeah and i
1: think what you said too is very important about the integrated nature of we are body we are mind and we are soul we are all three together and you know the idea is that that is why in islam those three are never separate if you look at the muslim prayer what is it you pray we pray with our bodies Mm-hmm. Our bodies are moving. We're praying with our tongues and our minds because we're saying and reciting certain things. And obviously, the most important thing, where is the heart? But that's not the only thing. It's all three together. Yeah, and from yeah. a Christian perspective, it's like, well, who cares where you're standing? Why do you have to wash yeah, before yeah, yeah, praying? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. why would you wash before you pray? Well, no, because you have to be in a state of physical ritual purity. Well, why? Why? you know jews understand Uh, the the
0: only there in the bible the prophets moses and so on all depicted as doing wudu before they prayed well what this was the norm biblical norm but today it's it's completely like many other things in the bible completely forgotten by contemporary and submission ultimate you
1: know attitude of submission is to take your head which is the highest part of you right and your contains your brain and your face is the most noble part and to put it literally at the lowest
0: yeah. Point, which is what oh, Jesus ground, is doing on. in the Gospels. Jesus is betrayed as doing right. it, many of the prophets Absolutely. as well. Yeah, and yeah. when you do
1: it, you're saying Subhan Glory mm-hmm. be to my Lord, the highest. So he's the highest, and you're putting your highest part in the lowest, and that's the proper relationship because he's the master, and you're the cre- he's the creator, and you're the
0: creature. And that's and where and true that's freedom true- comes from, the claim. freedom, freedom yeah. from nafs, freedom from the dunya, which enslaves and takes us over. Whereas the world looks. To the dunya for freedom right uh, and of course doesn't find it because it's of right. more of the same <laughs> so
1: right and, and not only is it freedom you know the ultimate true freedom but also it is the ultimate uh, realization of the actual human teleology because mm. you know in the quran i did not create jinn in mankind except to worship me so worshiping and submitting to god is actually our own our deepest nature and objective nature, right? Implanted in us by our creator. And so this notion of the fitra, right? The fitra, which is the 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 original human disposition, the Prophet peace be upon him said that every child is born on the fitra. And then after that, its children teach it, you know, different religion, Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, something other than like just the pure kind of, because these other religions, they started, but then they changed right? Anyway, and so it's important that, you know, you just look at the Muslim prayer. That's why it's integrated. And that's why all of life, you know, you come to sexuality, it's, it's neither, you know, it's not God in the modern world takes sex to be almost like God, but it's also not the devil. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's given its proper place and it's brought under the, the realm. So that's, that's very important. And uh, as you had said earlier, this comes more from probably Greek uh, you know uh, certain tributaries and not. Oh, really yes. uh, it's very, it's, it's
0: very, it's very clear if you, if you you know a bit about Greek philosophy and Greek Greek thought that this is very familiar territory. It's not a, it's not that new at all, really. Right.
1: Okay. So very quickly now, moving along. So Marx, and again, Marx is a huge figure. This is like you know, like a half a line, right? But in general, religion is a sign of weakness, and freedom, you know, can only be. Uh, uh, um, achieve through the abolishment of religion. So this is a very familiar to us as modern people. Again, we are usually, you know, um, unaware of the degree to which our psychology is really influenced by Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, you know, these people, it's like they live on, it's like they have left such a sediment in in our minds and consciousness. You know, if we realize that we can say, wait a minute, but I don't want that. I'm not, I don't have to, you know, anyway, Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900, the quote unquote death of God, basically it's also to this notion of the death of human nature if there's no god to provide stability to the world and meaning then also human nature is kind of untethered from its source and so we read in the quran do not be like those who forgot god so he forgot caused them to forget themselves and this is you see this in modern western history people turn their backs on god and then they don't know who they are anymore
0: Exactly. The the, the irony is, Friedrich Nietzsche was very perceptive in many ways. He 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 uh, shared the Muslim um, critique of many aspects of Western and Christian life. You know, the kind of the death wish, the denial of 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 uh, the sexuality. He he understood all that extremely well, and he had actually many positive things to say about Islam as well. This is the irony, and yet he he persisted in his um his atheism and 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 sought refuge in a kind of Greek. A kind of virtue ethics in, in in a way, a heroism and but um but Did no he, you, it, this he, he, he was, was not all a lot of what he said was actually very insightful although he obviously had a a fundamental problem uh, at the heart of his worldview though absolutely
1: and again two lines is not at all to give Nietzsche his, his due I mean because he, he's quite profound and prophetic in the sense that he really yes. foresaw you know what the West had done and that's his whole yes. you know the 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 marketplace the guy going out the right so he was telling people you. European Christians or post Christians in the late 19th century, you Mm -hmm. don't understand the implications of the Enlightenment, quote unquote, killing of God, right? Mm -hmm. And you're just riding on the fumes of Christian morality and civility, but you don't understand the implications of what you've done. I do. He didn't go back and say we should believe in God, but he foretold, you know, that what this would lead to. So, anyway. Sigmund right. Freud then comes along and he sees sex as absolutely foundational to human personhood and happiness. Freud is extremely important. I mean, his theories have been debunked for like decades and decades, but he <laughs> lives on in so many aspects of our culture and our psyche. Yeah. And yeah. so he's really the one who says, again, God is gone. Right. And he was an atheist. I mean, all of these marx Nietzsche, Freud, these are all hardcore atheists, yeah, not okay. Oswald, but these other, they're all atheists. Right. And this is not neutral. If you ask a Muslim, is your view of the world and the way you perceive things and you know is it influenced by your belief in god well of course yeah i mean it's, it's profoundly influenced so how can someone be an atheist and that's not going to profoundly influence the way they look at the world we cannot just take these thinkers as like neutral right yeah. and think that their atheism is not very germane to you know the ideas that they come up with and the way they perceive the world so we have to be very careful of that anyway so freud makes sex absolutely foundational to human personhood and happiness. However, he realizes that it's a very powerful force and that civilization, the possibility of civilization, civilization requires it to be contained. But so he sees this fundamental struggle. So he wrote that word civilization and its discontents, and it's that sexual discontent. And he said, even infants are sexual, right? So this is, again, so Freud is very so we see through Rousseau and through the 19th century, kind of increasing psychologization of the human person. And then with Freud, we get the sexualization of that inner psychology. So yeah. you are like very much your inner psychology, right? And now your sexuality is at the core of that inner psychology.
0: And, then, and then in America, you, you get people like Kinsey, the, the, the famous yes. psychologist in the 50s and 60s, who continued Freud's work and also uh, did actual empirical research on the sexual life of, of babies, which I won't go into, but... He, he, right. he, He uh, he continued precisely this trajectory um, and had a huge influence, obviously, on the the, the sexual revolution in the 1960s.
1: Absolutely. And so I didn't put him on here, but definitely Alfred Kinsey um, is very, um, uh, very uh, central to this. Nietzsche, Freud uh, and Oscar Wilde, you know, they concur basically that moral notions are essentially a matter of taste. This is very important. Um, it's also referred to as emotivism, and this is discussed at length by Alistair McIntyre, uh, a, a
0: British I guy, uh, a British philosopher who's living in yes. North America. Uh, um, but his book, After, After Virtue, which I've read, is, is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, if you want to understand a, a, a very profound and, in many ways, a very positive understanding of moral theory. Uh, at a fairly advanced level he's a he used to be a marxist actually and became a a catholic through his study of thomism Uh, that's the, the philosophy of thomas aquinas and and um heads the word virtue which is uh but um, he's a brilliant, brilliant philosopher, Alastair McIntyre. Still, still very much with us, I think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, but this notion that, you know, I was going to say actually Freud making sexuality the center of the personhood. We mm. read in the Quran, <laughs> have, you seen, have, have you seen him who takes his uh-huh. desire as his God? Yes. Yes. And this is literally, I mean, subhanAllah, you see, yes. you know, yes. like Nietzsche. Okay, we forget God, so we don't know who we are anymore. Freud you know we don't have god so we take our literally our desires as our god and like they, they, this literally what they're doing like like this is like a confirmation of what the quran is saying well, to like, is,
0: is say, but the quran is incredibly profound and, and insightful to all of these things yeah exactly right and mm-hmm.
1: so this idea also that it's a matter of taste or emotivism mm. right is is similar that it's just a question of you know and we'll get to this too because we read Verses, and this is very important for Muslims too, right? You can't just look out and say, oh, this appears to be good, or society says it's good because in the Quran, right, it says, um, You know, what about one whose evil deeds or, or foul deeds have been made to look beautiful to him? They've been beautified for him so that he sees them as good. So, wow. you can see something as good and beautiful, but yeah. that's not because it is good and beautiful. It's because like that, it's been made to seem that way. And who's doing this taziyin, who's doing this adornment of it? It's Satan. And that says in the Quran too, right? That uh, uh, um, this huppu bird, when it comes from Bilqis, the Queen of Sheba, back to Solomon, it says that I found them. You know, her, Bilqis, the queen of Sheba, and um, uh, and her people bowing to the sun, you know, worshipping the sun rather than God. was and, and Satan has beautified their act for them. In other words, he made it look fair and it's a foul deed, right? They're, they're, they're worshipping other than the actual creator. They're worshipping his creation rather than him. him. Mm-hmm. And Satan made it appear fair to them. So, so so this emotivism, that's exactly what emotivism means what? Oh, uh you know, I see this as being good or hassan or beautiful. And right? uh, this looks good to me, right? It appears good to my sensibilities. And this is how most modern people, many modern people, this is how they decide morality. Well, this appears good to my my sentiments. Well, okay, how do you know it really is or not? How do you know that you're that you're that foul things have not just simply been made to appear fair to you by Satan and his, you know, those who are sort of working with him. Yeah, this, yeah. These are realities. I mean, we're not materialists. Obviously. We believe in these unseen realities, right? This absolutely every time the Quran it says the scene in the unseen realm, always the unseen realm comes first, right? It's principial. We see what happens in the uh, world, is really the manifestation of unseen principles. The whole world is the manifestation of, 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 of an unseen creator. We don't see him in this world, right? Mm-hmm. And things that happen, I mean, even you don't even have to be a believer to, uh, you know, uh, to appreciate this point. What we do, our actions, are expressions of our inner reality, right? We, of who we are kind of in an immaterial sense.
0: Yes, we, we, so, we, anyway, don't, we don't see our consciousness. Our consciousness is, is invisible. Absolutely, yet. but no, it's manifested. And science can't see our, our thoughts. So no scientist ever, no experiment can ever see our thoughts. So this is this is kind of an example of the the unseen affecting the the material world. Right.
1: And then you have uh, uh, Wilhelm Reich and Herbert Marcuse, both of these um, uh, German. I mean, very important, very important figures also who was 1930s mostly 30s and 40s. Mark Hughes a little bit later really pushed very openly for sexual liberation, even back you know starting from the 30s with Reich. These are very dubious right. figures. called in the
0: 30s, which the Nazis closed down, but they continued after that. And uh, exactly
1: yeah. yes, and and you really see that there's this radical push. And again, we said that sexuality and sexual norms are very tied to the family, and they were not unaware of that. They were. Not, it was not just like oh, we want to have fun and yeah. we, we don't. They didn't see the the implications these people were very much against the family they wanted to destroy the- their um, names have
0: been associated with what some people call cultural marxism uh, uh it's, it's a yeah. uh, particular way of describing this kind of movement that uh, and, in today's world i mean yeah
1: and then you have a number of other like feminist thinkers i didn't actually put them on here but you have Simone de Beauvoir obviously oh, yeah. in france in 1950s. she but comes Jermaine, out with her book Jermaine, with the feminist mystique yeah. you have you know um germaine greer uh, in the 60s and 70s, you have uh, Shlomit Fire, uh, Firestone. Um, you know, there's a whole range. And by the way, you know, I mean, people don't realize, like you look into these people, I mean, really, like all of these people, all these people mentioned, just read like their Wikipedia page. You'll be very aghast at, like, about uh, the kind of people they were, how they lived their lives and so on and so forth. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir, who's sort of put forth as this big feminist icon, she and Michel Foucault, who's also practically a prophet to a lot of these kind of modern mm. post-colonial academics and woke, you know, kind of people, mm. right? They both, they campaigned in France to get rid of, uh, you know, to lower the age of sexual consent to include children. Both of them did. Mm. I mean, they, they campaigned for pedophilia. And Foucault lived a very dissolute life, morally speaking. And he actually yeah. died after catching yeah. AIDS at a BDSM-themed yeah. Yeah. bathhouse in San Francisco, I mean, so again, like, I mean, it's not like as Muslims, okay, it doesn't mean he cannot have like insights and critiques or maybe Simone de Beauvoir. I mean, okay, fine. But the point is like, we cannot be blind to the fact that, you know, these people's atheism and de Beauvoir also was a radical atheist as she was grew up in a very conservative Christian family. And she became an atheist, I think when she was 17 or 18, Jermaine Greer, also atheist, you know, by the time she was like 18, she talks about this, right? She had a very unfortunate experience and also just went to school with the nuns and Um, Australian. They could not answer her questions. And she, you know, was kind of rebellious and just said, I'm I'm not having it. But anyway, um, all right, let's, let's move on. So
0: yes, let's move on.
1: All right. So homosexuality in the wake of the sexual revolution. I'm going to very, very fast. I'm not going to talk about, there's a book that came out in 1989. It's called after the ball, how America will conquer its fear and hatred of gays in the nineties. It was written by two um, gay men. Marshall Kirk, who was a neuropsychologist, and Hunter Madsen was a social marketing and advertising executive. So look at the you know um, two fields here, a neuropsychologist and a marketing and uh, advertising executive. And they were both Harvard trained. And they basically put together a plan. I'm not saying their one book is the whole reason why things are the way they are. But in, the eight, in 1989, they came out with basically a manifesto how are we going to get America, and by extension, the rest of the, at least the Western world, because America is, of course, the peak of its power at that time, right, to basically overcome its rejection of homosexuality and so on and so forth. It's a very fascinating read. It's also a maddening read, I think, if you're a religious believer, because you see that they basically put a plan which was implemented like lockstep and barrel. Like, I mean, everything they said like came to be done. Um, And they actually said, I mean, this is quoting from the book. This is their own words. They say, the campaign we outline in this book, though complex, depends centrally upon a program of unabashed propaganda. These are their words, firmly grounded in long-established principles of psychology and advertising. And these are Harvard-educated psychologists and advertising executives. And, you know, one thing they say, you know, one major aspect of this pillar is desensitization. The principle of desensitization builds on people's primal instincts, whereby a flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible gets the job done. And then they say, if straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet, right? So this was all like, this all very intentional. And then they also say, they talk about conversion and they say, we mean conversion, Now look at that. I mean, again, straight quote from the book: "We mean conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media."
0: Wow, it's amazing quotes. Actually, I mean, it could have come come straight from hell. I mean, this is a deliberate attempt to subvert, undermine uh traditional deliberate uh, yeah uh, uh, quite quite intentional you keep you stress several times they were harvard educated so you know they had the intelligence uh, uh to to uh promote promote this and and you say they were very successful right
1: and i just want to you know i want people to also just realize that you know again we should not just uh, naively take the situation that exists around us as just, oh, well, that's what it is, right? Like many Muslims who kind of just parrot what they hear, especially in Western societies and parrot the discourse and all. It's like, do you realize that your discourse and your entire moral sen- moral sensibility has literally been crafted by people with a very particular, you know, um, intention to craft it in a very particular way,
0: yeah, right? Yeah. Inclu-
1: I, I'm not saying the whole thing is just these two men. Right. But but like what they said. And if you read the book, I mean, they say, you know, again, they themselves say there are all of these kind of dysfunctional dysfunctionalities about the gay community and they, they critique it themselves. They have like 10 points about all of these things. And they say, we're not going to show that to the public. They yeah. say when you bring like you're sitting in a tent and you bring the horses, you know, you let the. Front and you don't let the stinky back in. You leave the stinky I mean, back in. one
0: of the things obvious. There's something that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf has mentioned is that the anal intercourse, uh, which is the staple diet of um this, is extremely dangerous practice and it's an excellent right. way to transmit disease as well. um uh, in the to well, well, yeah. and and so you know the, the, this this current emphasis on on public health and so on, you know, uh, advertising against smoking and so on is all very good, of course, but this one practice uh, gets away scot free, even though. Uh, Is an excellent way to to uh, spread disease. Obviously, uh, aids uh, the virus and, and other means. So it, it's it's uh, but that but that's not highlighted or mentioned. That's overlooked completely. So, right.
1: Okay. So finishing off so there's another book which again i'm just putting on here a queer thing happens to america and what a long strange trip it's been by michael brown 2011 this is a big thick 600 tome and also kind of chronicles the last couple decades and also full of quotes from you know sort of gay activists lgbt you know organizations and stuff and a lot of it is very very shocking and it's not stuff you kind of read in the public but it's, it's things that have been said and written publicly but are not really, you know, um, yeah. shouted from the rooftop, so to speak. And so you have to dig a little bit. But when you see some of the the things that are admitted by people, when they're kind of speaking kind of off the record, or even by Madsen and Kirk on the record, like they wrote this book, you know, it really kind of makes you do a double take. And so it's it's worth, you know, doing that. And in one of the resources that we're going to talk about at the end, you know, you can actually get a very good um, summary in two podcast episodes on these two books so you don't have to actually read ah, the
0: right, good. thousand pages I, that yeah, they both i'm not familiar to. with these two works
1: yeah yeah okay all right um so very quickly so um from truman's i have a couple quotes from truman's book mm, mm. he says it is difficult to overestimate the importance of this move to make sexual desire central to human identity in modern society everything from the common use of terms such as straight and gay and everyday conversation to the underlying assumptions of international human rights law presupposes that this is the case. That what is the case? That sexual desire is central to human identity, right? That basically our desire is our God. (inaudible) And, And the idea that human flourishing is virtually synonymous with sexual fulfillment is a commonplace. In fact, virtually an intuition of modern Western culture. So you come and say, well, you know, our religion prohibits particular kind of sexual behavior, but wait a minute, you are prohibiting People from sexual flourishing, which means you are undermining what it means to actually be a human being. Like that's where this, this is. This comes. is
0: the book, actually. Yes. Just uh, from. Yep. yep. And um, uh, I have my own copy. Obviously, there is a, um, I'm proud to say he's actually a British. Uh, yes, he is. <laughs> living in the United States, where he is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, but this is definitely worth reading. And if you read,
1: if you get the audio version, which is what I listen to, both books, it, he reads it out himself, so you can listen to him read it out in his British wow. accent. Also. <laughs> yep, all right, and then the next one, moving right along, if we, if we are at root defined in large part by our sexual desires, if sexual desire or orientation, as we now say, is who we are, right, not just what we do, but who we are, then sex must be political, because rules governing sexual behavior are rules that govern what is and is not considered by society to be legitimate as an identity. So again, this identity question is absolutely central, and we have to understand the importance of it, and also why as Muslims it is such a problematic category. And then finally, the old chestnut of love the sinner, hate the sin simply does not work in a world where the sin is the identity of the sinner, and the two cannot be, conce- cannot be separated even at a conceptual level okay very very important here i'm going to now go faster i mean we spent a long time setting yeah. the groundwork but i think it's been important to do this because again if if people have you know absorbed what we've been talking about now we're going to get into islam and what does islam say we've already Adam it we're going to look at
0: the islamic paradigm on sex and sexuality uh, and now we
1: have a context in which we can fit that in and so we can go through this much faster because of course this will be familiar to muslims but hopefully when people hear this now and see these verses you'll also see it in a different context right because you've seen and again this is going to be uploaded people can take a break stop Go have coffee, you know, come back and finish this tomorrow. But yeah, sorry, yeah. You don't have to listen to all of this in one go, right? So yeah. Okay. All right. Creation of the male and the female. So we're just gonna go from the Quran, but again, reading it in terms of what we've been talking about. And by his creation of the male and the female. So so God created a male and he created a female, right? It's part of his purposeful design in creation and that he created the two mates the male and the female so they are mates of each other they're meant to go together and then he says and the male is not like the female so men and women are the same in many respects they're both equally human they both equally have uh, you know the duty to worship god and the ability to uh develop themselves morally and spiritually into you know um uh, uh, Earn the pleasure of God and to earn paradise and so forth, right? But they are not. There are many respects in which men and women are different physically, emotionally, psychologically, and so on and so forth. Statistically, of course, you know, I mean, individuals are 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 very different. I mean, men and women, but statistically speaking, there are things that are dominant in males, things are dominant in females. This is known. It's very not politically correct to sort of speak in these terms today, but the science so is there. A lot of research,
0: you know, did Jordan? Yeah, Puff, of course, it's there, but you're just not allowed to, YouTube videos. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. just have
1: to pretend it doesn't exist, right? Because it's not yeah, politically yeah. correct. So, but but we know for, as Muslims, the male is not like the female. So we're fine with that. We know it's true both by, by revelation and by just, you know, observation and our experience of the world. And then this longer verse, I'll just read it in English for the sake of time. And of his signs is that he created for you from yourselves mates that you may find tranquility in them and he placed between you affection and mercy. Indeed, in that are signs for people who reflect. And then, O mankind, fear your Lord. We hear this in the khutbah every Friday. O mankind, fear your Lord who created you from one soul and created from it its mate and dispersed from both of them, many men and women, right? I just say that because every Muslim, people they don't know Arabic, they'll recognize that phrase because, you know, always the khutbah starts with it on Friday. Other verses, we have the beautiful verse in the Qur'an right? About here the parity, the spiritual uh, parity between men and women. Surely men who submit to Allah and women who submit to Allah, men who have faith and women who have faith, men who are obedient and women who are obedient, men who are truthful and women who are truthful, men who are steadfast and women who are steadfast. Men who humble themselves to God and women who humble themselves to God or Allah. Men who give alms and women who give alms. Men who fast and women who fast. Men who guard their chastity and women who guard their chastity. Men who remember Allah much and women who remember Allah much. Right, Ten different qualities. Men who do it and women who do it. For them has Allah prepared forgiveness and a mighty reward. Beautiful. And then we have the believing men. And believing women are allies of one another. They enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong and establish prayer and give zakat and obey Allah and his messenger. Those Allah will have mercy upon them. Indeed, Allah is exalted in might and wise, right? So men and women, they are meant to be allies of one another, that they are constantly enjoining each other, but to what? To just following their whims? No, they're enjoining each other to what is right and forbidding what is wrong right, in coming together and forming communities that exalt the divine standards of right and wrong and try to, you know, uh, give people a greater ability to realize that moral uh, goal in their lives, that moral standard, and to um, develop themselves by doing so. And the established parent gives zakat, right? And then another verse, and this is more than one verse like this in the Quran, whoever works righteousness, man or woman, right, or male or female, and has faith, verily to him will we give a new life, a life that is good and pure, and we will bestow on such their reward according to the best of their actions, right? So we have this beautiful parity, complementarity between men and women, and this parity also, right, on this level. However, (laughs) the male is not like the female, and so we do see that in the practical life of how men and women interact in society, the roles that each one predominantly is meant to play, right? And the way they are meant to complement each other, they are not treated the same because they're not created the same. And so men are the protectors and maintainers of women. This is how Yusuf and Ali translated protectors and maintainers. Anyway, there's a big discussion on exactly what this means. And of course, it's very controversial, very controversial. today.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. But I'm just saying this, so you, men are the protector, or ala, the women, whatever, qawamun, you know, again, but men have a particular role to play vis-a-vis women, because God has given the one more than the other. He, he says strength, but again, there's a lot of discussion as to what the more is, and because they support them from their means. And then uh, in another verse, Surah al-Baqarah, and women have rights similar to the rights against them according to what is equitable, but men have a degree over them. Degree of advantage, again, this is a gloss here. And God is exalted in power and wise. Again, there can be a whole discussion on you know, the exact uh, rights and duties of men and women, Mm -hmm. Men and women have the same rights and duties in certain respects. They also have, you know, men have some rights that women don't have. Women have some rights that men don't have. Women have a right to be supported financially their entire lives. Men don't have that right. They have to support themselves. You know, men uh, take on certain leadership roles that women don't take, like head of the household, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, paradigmatically speaking, also Religious leadership, like leading prayer and so forth, right? So, there are distinctions there. So, there are areas of overlap and areas of distinction. This is fine because laysa can untha, and it all balances out in equity according to the wisdom of the creator from an Islamic perspective. And so, the difference in complementary nature of the male and the female, as we read, men and women are not the same, mm. right? There are mm. obvious biological, there's an obvious biological complementarity between male and female bodies and uh, reproductive systems, as we've been talking about, um, there is purpose. Again, this goes back to what you've said. Now it all falls into place. Purpose is inherent to the body and its functions as created wow. by God. It's wow. not for us to decide or assign on our own. People wow. say, well, who cares what you do if you're a quote-unquote, you know, dangly bits and all? No. I mean, those The things have a purpose. You either use them for that purpose or you don't use them, right? But but they are to be directed the way they were meant to be directed by God. Again, with the more latitude that the Islamic tradition provides in terms of, you know, um, rapport between husband and wife. Also, you know, pleasure is, you know, not every act, like in the Catholic Church, at least every single sexual act has to be at least uh, um, potentially open to no. Uh, to uh, conception, that's not true in Islam. I mean, a man and woman, they can enjoy themselves also just for pleasure. When the woman is menstruating, they're not allowed to have intercourse, but they're allowed to have other types of, you know, pleasurable activity, right? So there is sort of this, um, you know, notion that, but again, this is, this is these are the limits that God has placed, right? He's allowed this within this parameter, Uh, it's not stricter than that, but it's also not, you know, uh, wider than that, or the other way it's not wider. It's also not stricter. So this idea that my body, my choice, this is, this has nothing to do with an Islamic perspective. God's God's body. In the end of the day, they're on loan to us. We, he created them. Um, And, and you can choose whether to obey him or not to your own advantage or disadvantage respectively, but it's not up to us to make up the rules or to impose our own meaning onto things because we do believe that they do have the meaning that's been imparted up to them by their creator because we're not atheists and we're not materialists and we're not deists either and so we believe that you know all of creation has a purpose our bodies have a purpose our souls have a purpose our creation as, as human beings has a purpose our creations men and women separately also has a purpose right and so this is very central complementarity and disposition or masculine versus feminine traits fathers and mothers are not interchangeable There are religious rules for men and others for women. We talked about this, even in prayer, even where you wouldn't think it would be relevant. Like, you know, men are supposed to stand more like apart when they're praying, women more contracted. Why? Well, because men, right? Women are more contracted, men more expansive. That's just how they stand in the prayer and how they make the sujood, you know, the prostration. So even in very minute, the sharia is thoroughly gendered from Mm -hmm. start to finish, which is why I said earlier, The contemporary scene, race, gender, and sexual orientation is all one. We say no. Race, Islam makes no distinction between race. And it says in the Quran that, you know, among his signs are the creation of, or, you know, um, uh, that the difference in your tongues and your colors are a sign of God, right? Mm -hmm. So absolutely no race distinction whatsoever, right? Uh, And the Prophet is very explicit, peace be upon him, that uh, an Arab is not superior to a non-Arab nor a non-Arab to an Arab. Right. And a white man is not superior to black men or a black men to white men, except by way of piety and fear of God. Right. So complete like, you know, I'm not saying there's no racism among Muslims, but in Islam. Right. This is something that, you know, is 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 is, uh, you know, races are all considered equal. Right. Gender equally valid and equally valuable men are not better than women women are not better than men but they are different and so the sharia treats them differently and the gender distinctions are pervasive so it's a it's a thoroughly gendered tradition so this idea of moving towards this androgynous norm where men and women are just all the same and there's no boundaries this is completely against you know just the heart of islam you have to throw the entire religion out the window to, to, to incorporate this type of thing right? So we can't get on board with this kind of radical gender egalitarianism, which sees mathematical sameness and equality, and we will not rest until 50% of all CEOs and all companies are women, and 50% of all nurses and all hospitals are men. That's never going to happen, by the way, except through very coercive social engineering. engineering. Yeah,
0: and and Jordan Peterson, uh, who speaks on this subject frequently, has an excellent, he's obviously a scientist, a clinical psychologist, um, and there's a, a range of data. All the data uh, speaks uh, against this uh, uh, position that you're you're criticizing as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah and there you go. Oh, you, you were about setting. to say it. Now. OK. So <laughs> yes. all
1: sorts of psychological, physiological, psychological and dispositional differences between men and women, though this is taboo to say today because it goes against, you know, the zeitgeist and notions of social constructionism and, and you know, certain, uh, you, you know, uh, gender ideologies and so forth. So anyway, the nature of morality and ethics in Islam, this is very important. We've touched on it. So again, hopefully we can go through it um, uh, uh, um, quickly, but this is really important for the, the latter part of the discussion, which we are finally getting to sexual norms and then homosexuality specifically, and then we'll be wrapping up hopefully. Um, so, so where does morality come from, right? Where does it come from? In the West, you've had deontological ethics. Back when religion was more um, uh, prominent, this notion that, uh, you know, moral behavior was a largely a uh, question of doing your moral duty, and the moral duty was often, you know, seen as coming from God and divine command, right? And this is kind of natural within a, a theistic universe. Um, and so this is also for Muslims is very fundamental. God's command is absolutely fundamental. And we mentioned this before. And I also mentioned the verse, Wa ma illa I have created jinn in mankind, but to worship me. Right. And then um, it is God and his messenger, Allah and his messenger alone. Right. For the Muslim who are legislators of what is right and wrong, permitted and prohibited. This is not our prerogative as human beings either collectively to say we just sort of extemporaneously like, you know, exposit like a rational morality or let alone, you know, even more so our individual, this is the model. Well, what do you think of this? What do you, where do you stand on premarital sex? It's not your, it's nothing to do with what you
0: say. It's it's above above our pay grade. These questions are above our pay grade. (laughs) We refer them up. We refer them up. Exactly. Yeah. The authority to make the judgment. Don't ask me, ask the one who made us. Because Another, when
1: you do it, you know you get people like legalizing child pornography in the 1970s. Right? <laughs> That's what happens when you just leave people. And so this is a very critical verse, right? Uh, uh, I'll just read it in English again for the sake of time. It is not for any believing man or woman when Allah and His Messenger have decided on an affair to have any choice in their matter. Okay. In the word, you know, and ya kun alham alkhiyaratu min amrihim khiyar khiyar choice. And this is the, fet- the fetish of the modern world choice. Well, I chose, did you choose? Why do you wear hijab? Well I chose to. you know everything comes down to choice. It's legitimate if you chose it, it's not legitimate if you didn't choose. This strikes at the heart of that, right? Not believing for any believing man or woman, not appropriate right or, or becoming for any believing man or woman when God and his messenger have decided on an affair to have any choice in their matter. And whoever disobeys God and his messenger or Allah and his messenger has manifestly gone astray this verse just completely you know shatters that myth right that if god and this messenger have decided on an affair that's it it's it's their prerogative god's and obviously the messenger only is commanding is obeying the command of his lord so it's really god in the end right now you can disobey go ahead but you're disobeying you can't make up your own morality you can either obey god's morality or disobey it and you know, reap the consequences of either choice, but it's not your prerogative to make it up. So that's one, divine command, absolutely fundamental for us as Muslims. That cannot be lost from any discussion that we have as Muslims, particularly internally, when it comes to questions of sex, sexual morality, or anything. Number two, consequences matter. So there is a type of consequentialism, which becomes the dominant ethical theory in the modern world in the 19th and 20th centuries through people like John, you know, first Jeremy Bentham, then John Stuart Mill, right? Right. Moral action is that which brings the greatest benefit for the greatest number, the greatest happiness for the greatest number.
0: Utilitarianism, so utilitarianism, as it's called, right?
1: So we have kind of, a, in a sense, I wouldn't like to say it this way, but there's sort of a divine utilitarianism in the sense that God is wise, just, and merciful, and He legislates for us what is best for us, both in this world and both in this world and the next, from His omniscient perspective. Allahu Ya'lamun, Wa Antum God knows, and you don't know. So consequences matter, but it's not just the consequences that we in our limited perspective fixate upon it's it's you know in a larger and we'll see in, a, in another slide or two that there are maqasid uh, of the sharia there are there are uh, goals that the sharia is trying to uphold for the benefit in this world and the next of human beings right so that's a type of consequentialism but it's the one that is a divine consequential that god has set and that he has legislated also the means of Um, of achieving it. And then the third thing, and this is the third mainstream also in Western, you know, historically is uh, virtue ethics, which goes all the way back to Aristotle, right? In which Muslims also took on Aristotle's writings uh, on ethics very uh, enthusiastically and modified it and improved it and sort of infused it with, you know, the telos of revelation and and the spirit of, you know, and, and improved upon it. But they found what he said about ethics quite compatible. And the idea is that virtue and moral character are also a part of, Paramount importance, right? The notion of khuluq or akhlaq, the prophet uh, or, or uh, God's. We read in the Quran, Allah says, "Wa innaka la Speaking to the prophet, you uh, are, uh, you know, you have a a noble or a magnificent moral character, right? And and even the word virtue is like, you know, uh, MacIntyre has like after virtue. That's why he called it that. Because there's no virtue left. We don't talk about it. The word is so old-fashioned. And mm-hmm. virtue like, gets a chuckle. Like, virtue? Like, what is that, right? But the Prophet said, peace be upon him, them I was sent but to perfect the noble traits of character. So your character matters. There are things like, for example, hasad, which is envy. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said that envy eats up good deeds like fire eats wood. And envy means that you uh, are so jealous of what someone has that you don't have to the extent that you want that person to lose that benefit if you cannot enjoy it yourself. So it's one thing to say, oh, look at the benefit that person has. I wish I had that. Uh, But it's another thing to say, I actually, you know, uh, willfully uh, desire that he should lose that benefit because I can't stand to see someone, uh, you know, uh, uh, enjoy it if I can't enjoy it. This is very ugly. And, and this is not even acting on, it's not like I'm going and sabotaging, like, you know, keying his brand new Mercedes, like, you know, I'm not doing it. But just in my heart, I have that hasad. In, in that state of the heart, the prophet said that state eats up your good deeds. So your, your, your noble, your, your character matters, right? And your virtue matter matters. And then the Prophet also said, very important for us as Muslims, peace be upon him, every religion has a characteristic moral trait. And the characteristic trait of Islam is modesty, hayat, right? And then finally, to round this off, he said, if you have no shame or modesty, then do as you please. Okay. How does this compare with the contemporary moral and ethical discourse? Where does divine command fit in the moral, in the current moral discourse in the modern secular West? Well, it's irrelevant right? There's no God. God is dead, Nietzsche told us, right? And the West has been secularizing for centuries. So sexual morality is separated from religion, we saw at the beginning, becomes thoroughly personal and subjective. That's true of all morality. It becomes a question of emotivism and, you know, personal taste and and so forth, right? You have the centrality of these sort of ersatz notions, like replacement notions or replacing religion. So freedom, we talked about, right? This kind of fetishization of of personal autonomy, whereas Islam is based on servitude and submission to God. This notion of autonomy, right? If you know what it means, auto is self, nomos is a law. Autonomy literally means, and this was Kant who really talked a lot about autonomy, it means to give oneself the law. Any Muslim can immediately feel once you translate it how blasphemous that is. Because God is the lawgiver, right? He's the Sharia, the, the, the lawgiver, and the Sharia is his way, his law, right? We are not, we don't give ourselves the law. This is to make gods of ourselves, literally, right? So God and his messenger alone have the right to legislate, as we saw in that verse, right? That when God and his messenger have decided upon an, a matter, it is not for a believing man or a woman to have a say in it. And then this notion of authenticity we talked about. We would say, as Muslims, in response to that, yes, we want to be authentic, but we are only our true authentic selves as human beings when we have found it and submitted to our Creator, because that is the objective, inherent purpose with which He has created all human beings. As the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, every human being was born on the fitrah, right? And so, coming back to your internal nature and submitting to your Creator, that is the homecoming of every single human being. If they don't realize it, they don't realize it's to their own detriment, but that is everyone's true homecoming is back to, to God. And so consequences, so divine command, we is irrelevant in the modern, you know, ethical and moral discourse. What about consequences? Well, again, consequentialism, utilitarianism is the dominant ethical theory, right? But the consequences are judged in purely subjective terms, if at all, and also in purely Um, uh, material and in this worldly terms. It's a secular notion of what consequences, which consequences really matter. And we would say that Allah knows our interests better than we do, and he alone has full knowledge of all consequences, and those consequences are related both to this world and to the next world as well. And then finally, virtue and moral character we talked about. Virtue is an old-fashioned and quaint term in modern parlance. Sexual behavior is seen as irrelevant to moral character, right? Uh, you can do whatever you want sexually as long as it was consensual. No one sees that as having any impact on your moral character. It's just considered totally irrelevant because sex is, is, doesn't have any meaning anymore. It doesn't have any moral uh, uh, meaning either. There's no moral kind of code or norm attached to it, as we said, right? Um, and so this also downplaying of, more, of, of virtue and of moral character, right? Um, this, again, the Quran refutes this, سليم, He says uh, in the Quran, the Day of Judgment is that, that day on which neither uh, wealth nor progeny will avail a person, right, except for one who comes with a sound heart. The only thing that will avail you on that day is coming to God with a sound heart, right? Okay. Um, all right, so Islamic sexual and gender norms. Again, we'll try to just speed through this. Again, hopefully this will be familiar to Muslims, but who knows, in the modern age and contemporary society, a lot of Muslims surprisingly don't even know some of the basic Islamic rulings on certain of these issues. So hopefully this will be a a beneficial, you know, uh, experience for our uh, viewers, right? So we talked already about the centrality of sexual norms to any society and moral system, so I won't repeat that. Um, Sexual norms in the Sharia are tied to family and to family law, Right. Because, again, sex is reproductive and the family is the absolute central, most central, most important social institution. And so, you know, legislation surrounding sexuality is absolutely uh, uh, um, paramount and it is part and parcel of our religion. It's not negotiable, it's not something we say, oh, well, we believe in one God, but we can just change all the sexual norms. No, this lies at the very heart of the religion. Right? And that's because of the centrality of the family and therefore of sex and sexual morality to the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. So as every Muslim hopefully should know, sex outside of marriage, which is called zina, is strictly forbidden, haram, and it constitutes a major sin, Kabira. right? There are major sins and, you know, not less major sins. Uh, and zina, which is sexual intercourse between a man and a woman who are not bound by a, you know, uh, Islamically valid contract um, of marriage, uh, is a major sin, right? Why? It undermines one of the fundamental objectives or maqasid of the sharia, which are five or six, actually, the protection of religion, the protection of life, the protection of lineage and family, which is where the prohibition of, you know, uh, extramarital sex comes in, uh, the pro, pro, um, protection of property, protection of intellect, and the protection of honor. These are the six, you know, overriding objectives that the scholars looked at the rulings of the sharia on the divine legislation and said, these are the six fundamental categories that are necessary for human beings to flourish, all human beings to flourish in this world. And in the next world that these six fundamental things have to be protected. And one of them we see is lineage and to protect lineage and the sanctity and integrity of the family structure sexuality must be tightly confined to it. And so the rules regarding extramarital intercourse are actually very strict and very severe because it's considered not only a sin, but also a social crime, right, that's potentially uh, adjudicable, you know, can potentially be, uh, you, you know, punished in a court of law. It's very difficult to implement certain of the, you know, stiffer penalties, but conceptually, You know, we don't have this notion. Okay, my sexual behavior is just my own private affair. No, that's modern secular individualism. It's not. Islam is not realistic either, because our sexual behavior is. It has ripple effects, and it does affect society, and it affects many other people other than our ourselves. And so, Islam recognizes that and legislates accordingly. What are the consequences of zina? So, extramarital sex. So the main reason the scholars say this has been prohibited is because it leads to the mixing of lineage what they call halt al ansab that you're mixing lineage and you're obscuring you know who uh, who who uh, belongs to whom and to what family and this is considered fundamental for our identity as human beings and also for our social relationships so many rights and duties in traditional societies and in islam you know devolve upon a person through their actual blood relations and so it's very important for me to know if I'm a man is this my child or not that I have to spend on right who do I inherit from i inherit from my relatives i have to know who they are right and families you know again a lot of studies on this even by secular like western secular anthropologists and uh, scientists and others you know uh, about how it, we naturally prefer our own kind of lineage over those who are outside of it, right? This is natural. It's part of the fitra that we've been created with. So the consequences of zina, premarital sex, right? We didn't get to homosexuality yet. This is, it's an aspect of it, but even between men and women, it undermines the institution of marriage, which leads to the breakdown of the family unit, and by extension, the breakdown of society. So that's a massive consequence, not just a personal issue. And also, right, beyond the pragmatic and sort of sociological uh, 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 repercussions, it has grave consequences for one's personal virtue, one's moral character, and one's standing before Allah. And all of these are relevant to us and and, and important, right? And they determine our state on the day of judgment and in our uh, eternal afterlife, right? And so norms for minimizing zina, how does Islam attempt to legislate in order to minimize the occurrence of zina and make it a realizable moral norm for the average man and woman to actually avoid non-marital intercourse. Well, um, as we read in the Quran, and tell the believing men to lower their gaze and to guard their private parts. And then it goes on and tell the believing women to lower their gaze and guard their private parts. So, uh, you know, not looking at other people with sexual lust and also covering our bodies and maintaining modesty. We saw before two three slides earlier, that the Prophet peace be upon him said every religion has a characteristic moral trait, and the characteristic trait of Islam is modesty. So Muslims are known for their very intense sense of modesty. Also, no physical contact between non-mahrams, meaning a man and woman who are not so closely related that they could not marry. So any woman who's you know, not your mother or sister or whatever, you should have no physical contact if you're not actually married to her or a close relative. So there's not just not premarital sex in Islam, there's no premarital physical contact at all. That's the actual ruling. Uh, it can sometimes be difficult, especially handshakes and so forth, but this is the, the principle. Also no halwa between mahrams, which means a man and a woman who are not, you know, closely related. They should not be alone in an isolated place where they fear, um, uh, unannounced intrusion, okay? And the idea is not that, oh, Muslims think every time a men and women are alone together, are just going to hit the floor and lose control. But the idea is that you are putting yourself in temptation's way and, you know, it's a very volatile aspect of human life. And when you open yourself to that temptation, sometimes it just comes and gets you from where you least expect it and you fall. You think you're in control and you can completely lose control and can be very dangerous. Also, modest dress, speech and behavior for both men and women. So these are the norms, <clears> right? Um, is zina the only thing that's forbidden in the realm of sexuality? So there's a um, there's a ruling or a principle actually in Islamic law which says all things are permissible by default. Al asuf fil li that everything that you a human being could do is by permissive per, by default permissible unless revelation has come and specifically prohibited it. But when it comes to sexuality and sexual behavior, it's the opposite principle. Ah. Sexual matters are forbidden by default. They're haram unless they're specifically permitted. So sexual behavior by default is not permitted except where it has been specifically legislated and permitted. And where is that? Sexual relations between a man and a woman bound by an Islamically valid contract of marriage. It says in the Quran, except your spouses and those whom your right hands possess. In our day, this category doesn't exist. It's spouses. So I put here, you know, valid contract of marriage, right? Valid, Islamically valid contract, uh, marriage contract between a man and a woman. So what is prohibited? Everything else, <laughs> okay? So if you're not men and woman, you're not married, then any sexual activity, or if you're obviously two men or two women, you're, you can't be a man and a woman married if you're two men and two women, right? So everything else would be prohibited. Sexual acts short of intercourse, right? If you're not within that relationship. Anal intercourse categorically prohibited, even between a man and a woman
0: in marriage. Uh, that alone, prohibition on on lewat or anal intercourse is for all, all people, not just for uh, gays. It's for exactly,
1: absolutely. It's a it's a blanket prohibition, right? Mm. It, you know, the, the the rectal cavity is not the place where the male organ was designed to go. Period. I mean, mm. again, we believe these things were designed with a purpose. It's common and, sense when you think it,
0: about it, but yeah, yeah, indeed.
1: Right, it's not meant to go there, and that's it's considered a gross misuse of the body. to to put it there. And so it's not permitted even between a husband and wife. Um, And then exposing one's aura or one's private parts to other than one's spouse without need, such as medical and so forth. And we know the aura for the man is from the navel to the knee. And for the woman, you know, there's different levels of it. All of the body, except the face and hands in front of non-marriageable males, a a more relaxed aura in front of family members and, and women and so forth. But the idea is that you cover your body, especially your primary sex organs. You know, you don't uncover them except in it for need, right? So Muslims don't have, you know, uh, are not supposed to have like open kind of locker rooms and people walking around naked and so forth. This would be considered a breach of Islamic uh, morals and etiquette. Uh, Masturbation, according to the majority, also prohibited. Um, So solo sex. So the idea here is that sex is meant to be somehow by design to be uh, inherently heterosexual, obviously, men and women, but also inherently interactive, Right. And so uh, engaging in sexual behavior by oneself, according to the majority. Right. Is it, there's some discussion about it is also prohibited, Right. Um, obviously, this has nothing to do with consent because, you know, actions like that are obviously consensual. I mean, Zina also is consensual. <laughs> yeah. So this modern fixation on consent is not relevant. I'm not saying you can force someone to have sex with you. I mean, but I'm just saying the presence of consent does not render a sexual act licit if it's otherwise prohibited. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Um, and so, in addition, anything that leads systematically, or that systematically threatens to lead to illicit relations, like touching, gazing, you know, with the eyes, khalwa, being alone, you know, with a person of the opposite sex, immodest speech, dress or behavior, all of these things are also prohibited because they can lead down this very slippery slope. And it says in the Quran, It doesn't just say don't commit zina, it says don't even come close to zina, don't even get near it, right? Right. Um, what does it mean in the Sharia to protect family and lineage, right? Again, I sort of said this, extended family is normative. So consider inheritance laws. A person dies, you can bequeath one third of your wealth to non-heirs, but then the rest of it devolves upon your close relatives according to predetermined shares. So it's it, the, re, the your wealth re, resorts to its rightful owner, which is God, and then it's de, dis, redistributed amongst your close relatives according to the standards uh, of revelation, right? Which is also why it's important, who am I related to? who has a right in my inheritance or whose to whose inheritance do i have a right these are important questions blood ties through lineage and therefore natural reproduction is of prime importance this is very critical consequently and this is important too the prohibition of most means of artificial reproduction are prohibited in islam as being tantamount to zina mm. now this doesn't make sense from a western perspective why so what does this mean a man and a woman are married okay The woman has healthy eggs, the man has healthy sperm, but maybe her fallopian tubes are blocked, so the sperm can't get to the eggs, so they can't conceive naturally. In this case, a married man and a woman, healthy eggs, healthy sperm, she carries the baby. In this case alone, the doctor can artificially inseminate by the majority and implant the baby, the the, the zygote in the, the woman. She carries the baby and gives birth to it. So the doctor helped, but what? The baby's born of a married mother and father and His biological mother also carried him. This is the natural way. This is the way that God set up for humans to reproduce. That cannot be breached. So sperm donor from outside the couple, egg donor from outside the couple, surrogate mother, all of these are prohibited because they are seen as bringing about the effects of zina by crossing lineage and blurring natural family lines. And one thing that's relevant to this discussion, we often hear because technology now allows for this kind of artificial reproduction, right? Technology is never its own moral argument. It's never just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. And whether we do or do not use technology or use it in a particular way comes back to your moral system. And for our, us as Muslims, the sharia is our moral system. And it, you know it allows me to be sitting in Boston, you in London, and we're, conversing using this modern technology no scholar would say this is a problem but it doesn't but because we have the ability to artificially reproduce right here they say no the sharia this is a central domain of it and it forbids this type of tampering with the natural reproductive uh, uh, um, you know sunnah that Allah has set up in human reproduction this is this is life itself you can't play with this and in our society many people say well you know uh, technology has basically flattened the playing field between gay and straight couples because now you can have gay marriages or lesbian and they can just have artificial means of reproduction have their own families. We say, no, no, no. Those means of reproduction are forbidden, even for heterosexual couples. So the fact that you're trying to justify these new arrangements based on that technology, well, a technology, we don't even accept it to begin with. So it's not an argument in your favor, at least from our perspective, right? Further Islamic principles related to gender, there are two genders, many verses in the Quran, we saw he created the male and the female. Um, There is this notion of an intersex person born physiologically with ambiguous gender. This has been known since time eternal. And the Sharia talks about that. This is not psychological gender dysphoria, which is different. Someone who has an unambiguously male or female body is considered by the Sharia to be a male or female, a man or a woman accordingly. So biological sex and psychological gender, you know, this distinction which came about in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, this is not something that we as Muslims, you know, uh, would would run with, right? This idea that your biological sex and your psychological gender, okay, they might be disparate, but normatively they should be, they should line up. These are not free-floating variables. And we said this earlier, if you're male, have a male body, the norm is that you would actually identify as a man. Now, maybe you don't. That's gender dysphoria. That's gender identity disorder. We can deal with that, but it doesn't mean that there is no sort of normative connection between the physical body and the psychological gender, right? Now, something also very important, and this you know is going to be uncomfortable for many contemporary Muslims, especially in the West, deliberate imitation of the opposite sex is forbidden, specifically in dress and affectations. Um, and there's a famous hadith, which is narrated in several different variations, that uh, actually not God is cursed, but that, that the prophet, said the prophet cursed men who deliberately imitate women and women who deliberately imitate men, okay? Now, what does this mean, deliberately imitate? It's very important that we understand deliberately Im- imitating, because there can be men, and Islam is realistic, there can be men who are more effeminate by nature in their speech, in their you know um mannerisms and the way they behave there could be women who are kind of more masculine by nature this is not what's being talked about here it's the ones who deliberately imitate who take on by design the characteristics that are known in a particular society to belong to the other sex
0: so these are early on with you those drag queens that go into uh school yeah drag uh,
1: queen story hour exactly really uh
0: Dressed up in the most outrageous uh, women's clothes, and that is very deliberate because it's completely unnatural. I mean, it's very artificial, but that that would be right. an example of deliberately imitating women, or, or a certain very crude and exaggerated uh, 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 imitation of women. I don't think any normal woman would look like that. But anyway, so that that's exactly. an example, yeah,
1: right, right. And the idea is that you can always, you know, decide how you dress. Right? You might not be able to control your gait or your mannerisms or your speech. Uh, but, you know, you can always choose what to wear. And so actually, al-Bukhari, one of the main hadith collectors, he put this hadith in the chapter on dress in his book. So, the, the you know, this was understood as really, again, things that you can uh, consciously, um, uh, that you can consciously control. So what about those who fall outside of this binary, right? Um, and so this comes up. Again, these are real, and we're going to get into this now very sh- shortly. These are real conditions that people might, you know, we said they might actually feel psychologically um, not in line with the body, right? So, what do we do about this? So, we say sex, gender identity, and expression, and sexual orientation should normatively line up. In other words, they are, quote-unquote, meant to line up. That is the normal thing, right? And it is the normative thing. So, this gender-bred person, which we'll see again in a minute, right, where gender, you know, uh, sex, male, female, gender, man, woman, sexual orientation, gay, straight, gender expression, you know, masculine, feminine, these are all considered like four free-floating variables. They may or may not match up and you can mix and match however you want. And it's all, they're all equally normatively fine. We would say no, right? Normatively, they should all line up, but we understand that for some people they won't. And people are not morally responsible for that to the extent that it's not something that they have chosen or brought about um, uh, on on themselves, right? Um, So exceptions to the rule, like, you know, uh, misalignment, do not undermine the rule itself. That is the normativity of things like what? The normativity of the male-female gender binary, absolutely central to the way God has created us as human beings, as he says in the Quran, right? Uh, Also, it does not undermine the normativity of the expectation of broad conformity to the behavioral norms, dress and mannerisms of one's natal sex or gender, right? And we're not allowed to imitate the opposite sex um, uh, willfully, right? And it also does not, Undermine the normativity of opposite sex attraction and within marriage opposite sex sexual expression. It doesn't mean everyone necessarily falls into that, but the fact that some people might not be attracted to the opposite sex and they might be attracted to their own sex, that doesn't undermine the normativity of opposite sex attraction. So does that make quote unquote, heteronormative? Yes, obviously. We would not consider that a term of abuse, but it's used as well.
0: and, and it'd be a virtue rather than a <laughs> yeah,
1: other than a good right. Yeah. right now very important question and again we are wrapping up so i i uh <laughs> paul i can tell i know you've been traveling so <laughs> i i'm sorry to to go on for so on long
0: no this is uh extremely helpful and useful please continue am i
1: sinful for feeling attracted to my own sex or not identifying with my own gender right am i sinful just for having those feelings whether it's i'm attracted to my own gender you know erotically or sexually or i don't you know um, identify with my with my actual sex, right? There's a key Islamic principle, and this is very important for especially for people who are, you know, not as familiar with how these issues play out in people's actual lives, right? Key Islamic principle, you are morally responsible only for what you have control over, right? <inaudible> that God does not bear does not burden a soul with greater than it can bear. You are not called to account for what you don't have control over. So if you are, despite yourself, you find that you are attracted to your own sex, right? You are not responsible for those feelings to the extent that you did not choose those. And people who experience that generally don't choose that. It's not something you choose. It's something that you kind of experience and you discover within yourself. So you're not morally responsible just for having those feelings, right? doesn't mean that, okay, you fantasize and you, you know, whatever you, you, you have ways, and then you can live in ways that might, you know, encourage, right? That's different. Those are things you're choosing to do, but just the very kind of base fact that, okay, I, I discover when I became a teenager that, you know, I'm erotically attracted to my own sex rather than the other sex. This does not make you a evil person or a sinful Muslim or, or let alone a non-Muslim. Uh, of course not. You're not, if you don't have control over it, you're not morally responsible. However right? So merely experiencing same-sex attractions or gender identity disorder or dysphoria does not constitute a sin. And this, as far as I know, is sort of agreed upon. I mean, all scholars would agree with this. However, right, we are still responsible for our actions because you choose your actions, specifically refraining from haram sexual behavior, right, or deliberate imitation or impersonation of the opposite sex, right? Cross-dressing, you know, socially transitioning to the other sex, chemically or surgically transitioning also, these are by consensus of Muslim scholars. Sunni Muslim scholars are forbidden. There is some difference of opinion uh, within Shiite circles based on the fatwa given by the late Ayatollah Khomeini, the leader of the Iranian revolution who died in 1989. Uh, Many Shiite scholars don't accept that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that permission, but there is some discussion there. But among Sunni scholars, there is a consensus that gender transitioning is is prohibited. It doesn't mean there's not a recognition that people can have gender dysphoria, but it means that it is not permissible to try to deal with that by changing the body. Um, and so, this gender bred person, I told you we would meet him again, and I already talked about it. So, sexual orientation, you know, heterosexual, homosexual, it's a scale. Biological sex, female, male, intersex, right? Is real. There is the intersex condition has been. Uh, dealt with in the sharia gender expression you can be either feminine in your expression masculine or androgynous gender identity woman man gender queer and these are children are being taught this now right so your sex is your gonads like you know your genitalia basically orientation is who you're attracted to and romantically and sexually that's in your heart identity is how you identify in your brain as a man or a woman and your gender expression is you know the body how you interact and present And again, the sharia regulates this. It's not up to you as a person to just kind of, again, take this to the psychologization of the self. Well, I feel this internally. Therefore, I'm an inauthentic person unless I'm allowed to just do this, right? And if you don't accept me as a Muslim community and you don't accept my gender expression or my gender identity or my sexual orientation, i.e. acting upon it in ways that are, well, you've undermined my dignity, right? And that's sort of how that, that moral discourse goes. We say, no, 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 no. That's not what our conception of the human being is based on to begin with. You're importing a completely foreign ideology and a completely foreign worldview into Islam. Um, Okay. I'm not going to, I mean, I already talked about this a little bit. Um, When it comes to gender nonconformity, right, and we are really almost done here, when it comes to gender nonconformity, scholars recognize that there is a conventional component right? A component to what counts as male versus female, uh, you know, uh, dress, interests, behavior. There is some socially, quote unquote, socially kind of influence or socially constructed component. But nevertheless, all societies differentiate between males and females. So if I go back to 18th century America and look at the way the founding fathers of this country dressed, they had these big frilly wigs, you know, I mean, like curly, long curly hair, these frilly blouses and tights, like stockings. And for us, if you dress that way, they're going to think you're dressed in drag. That's very feminine for us today. But in their time, that's how men dress. So that's conventional. But that's not how women dressed at their time. The women there, there's very billowing like dresses and the, you know, whatever. So the men and women dress differently. They didn't dress the same. Even in our age, even this like unisex, like I'm wearing what I'm wearing and what you're wearing is clearly men's clothing. You know, woman's blouse is always cut like curved and, you know, it's always different. Like men and women are not the same. Right? So there's some cultural component to that, but the idea is that whatever is largely generally recognized as being masculine or feminine in your society, you're actually bound in the Sharia to sort of conform to that. Well, can I just be my own autonomous individual and throw off the shackles of society? No. I mean, that, that's Russo, that's the 19th century, that's secular European psychologization of the self and radical autonomy and individual. That's not Islam, right? So choose your paradigm, choose your religion. But you know, don't try to mix the two. They're not the same. Dress, as we said, strictly forbidden on the basis of the hadith quoted, to imitate the opposite sex in dress, accoutrements, et cetera, as conventionally recognized in one society. What about mannerisms? I'm a male, I have a high voice, or I kind of have effeminate, you know, walk or you know, hand movements, right? Um, the scholars actually, again, this is a phenomenon. We see this in society, right? A man could be even heterosexual, but kind of effeminate, right? It's this, the, or a woman could be kind of masculine. And, all right. Scholars recognize that a person could have gender, atypical mannerisms, gait, voice, etc. Um, The man would be called muhannath, right? That's a male with effeminate mannerisms and a woman, mudhakkara, a female with masculine mannerisms. What did the scholars say about this, right? They said these these mannerisms, they could be either Khilqi, which means constitutional, like the person's just, it's natural to that person, or it could be affected, like they're taking it on, they're they're purposely doing it. We know if it's purposeful, then that's forbidden. We've already seen that, right? So purposely affect, affecting such mannerisms is haram by consensus. However, if it comes to somebody naturally, right, effeminate tendencies to a man or sort of more masculine, you know, uh, to a woman, right? The scholars here have differed some of them said that the person should try to recondition himself or herself you know uh, try to make reasonable efforts to bring their behavior more in line with what's typical of their sex and if they don't try to then they're sinful for not trying but if they try to and they can't do it after a reasonable effort then the blame drops and you know th- th- that's fine okay other scholars said they're not even obligated to even attempt. As long as it came to them naturally and they didn't deliberately do it, they don't have to. It would normally make your life probably easier, just socially speaking, especially for a man. You know, I mean, there's a particular stigma in most societies against effeminate men often. You know, it'd probably make one's life easier, you know, to to kind of rehabituate. If possible, some people might find that very difficult. And if they do, then they're actually not blamed for that. And they should not be um, made fun of. It would actually be haram to do that. They should not be categorized as being any particular way or it should not be assumed that they engage in particular sexual behavior like same-sex behavior just because they might appear as feminine right this is these are all this is all which is kind of um suspicious thinking of someone and this is actually haram to 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 um have that in islam okay interests and behavior islam is not super prescriptive when it comes to thing like things like personal likes and dislikes right girls being more into sports or bricolage Boys being interested in music and art or cooking. Okay, it might not be that typical of your sex, but as long as the activity itself is not forbidden, there is no particular stigma. You know, I mean, one can pursue one's interests, so there is a latitude uh, there. And the sunnah has lots of examples of things that in our society, modern West or whatever, you know, we might consider out of character men crying profusely, right? Also, the Prophet, peace be upon him, was not above domestic tasks in 7th century Arabia, sweeping the floor, mending his own socks, right? We don't say, oh, that's just women's work. Well, okay, maybe more typically, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it's beneath a man, for example. Our Prophet, peace be upon him, did this, right? Uh, Important, we don't have an ideal of womanhood that is akin to the Victorian notion of the kind of dainty, delicate, fainting female, (laughs) you know, like, oh, like so frail and weak and what? We don't really see that in, in Islam. Like, okay, men and women are the same. Men in general are stronger than women physically. I mean, obviously that's that's not really disputable, but this idea that women are these kind of fragile porcelain kind of like fainting, you know, this is not really, I mean, even in the West, I mean, you could say like that's, uh, you know, localizable to particular time periods and cultures, but, you know, we, we don't have this in Islam. Um, what counts as appropriate same-sex interaction is largely conventional, Many Muslim men, you know, as people know, are very touchy-feely compared to men in the West. They're constantly hugging and kissing. And, you know, in many Eastern societies, walking hand in hand, even sometimes with, you know, their fingers crossed. And this, in the West, you know, I mean, this would clearly be, you know, you'd say, okay, well, they're they're, they're gay if two men are walking like that. In the East, um, you know, this is not taken to be uh, sexual at all. It's just, you know, friends are very, you know, close. They have close physical, you know, kind of contact um however this is changing as western norms continue to dominate the world and propagate themselves through media and technology i was told that you know when i was in cairo in the mid-90s it was very common for men to walk around of all social classes holding hands in the streets and hooking arms and i was told that no one does that anymore in cairo
0: i I actually asked a friend of mine uh, who's uh, an academic in cairo professor there and uh, he said exactly what you said Uh, he lives there now yeah
1: yeah, exactly. And and this is not good news because it means the entire Western sexual paradigm is becoming deeply imbibed even by Muslims abroad now in, in the Muslim world, right? Um, and, and now you have Cairo youth saying, oh, well, that's gay, you know, to walk, holding my friend. What do you mean gay? Like, we don't have that concept in Islam. We don't have that concept. We have actions. We don't have a sexual identity to begin with. Well, but guess what? They're taking it on because, you know, again, Western norms are very aggressively pushed as the only valid ones, and Western culture continues to dominate through its products—movies, television, cinema, the internet, and so forth. And so, Muslims are not, you know, exempt from being uh, uh, affected by this. But we should be aware of it because it's not innocent, right? It has implications. Um, there are clear Islamic guidelines that transcend culture, right? So we said there was a cultural element as to what is appropriate same-sex interaction. That's not without limits. So again, we've seen there's a prohibition of seeing or touching the aura or private parts of someone of the same sex, Specifically, particularly prohibited in the hadith to lie naked together, other, together under one sheet, even if the lights are off, because, well, you know, I mean, that's a very precarious position to be in. So there are clear Islamic guidelines that kind of transcend culture, but within these guidelines, cultures can differ on these things. Intersex individuals, the khuntha, there's a, you know, quite um, uh, extensive, uh, uh islamic um uh, uh discussion of, of the junta the intersex individual i will not talk about it here we have plenty of work and i'll show in the resources you can read a lot about this topic gender identities disorder. order um again it would be seen more as a psychological or emotional condition it's not a third sex or a woman a re- actual woman actually trapped in a man's body this is kind of a foreign concept but it would be seen as a a psychological or emotional mismatch between the body which again can be very acute and very painful and very real for people but the idea is how do we deal with it and how do we conceptualize it Mm. um and we said hormonal and surgical transition procedures are not permitted islamically all right the last leg are we good to go
0: yes please
1: all right so what is homosexuality (laughs) right we figured, wasn't this what the whole talk was about? Well, yes, and we've been building up to this, and, and hopefully, again, all the pieces will fall into place. What is homosexuality? The contemporary background. We always have to question our terms. There's a principle in the sharia that one can only judge a thing when it is properly conceived. So if you want to say what something is or isn't, or you know, give a moral judgment or legal, we have to have a conceptualization first of what is it? So when you say homosexuality, what is that? I don't even know what that is. I don't have an Arabic word for it. So what is it? LGBT, you know, again, I put it in quotation marks in the beginning because I'm questioning the category, right? I, I, I can't translate that into Islamic terms. So we have to understand what we're talking about. So homosexuality in contemporary parlance, and even the word homosexuality now is old fashioned and considered offensive by many people and like the LGBT uh, uh, you know, uh, who identify as LGBT. I think it's fine. I mean, it's just purely uh, clinical. It's 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 like homosexuality, same sex. That's all it means. But anyway, and I prefer to use it because it is not our term. We don't have a term that is exactly similar to that in classical Islamic terms. I mean, there are neologisms that that translate homosexuality into the Arabic. But I think homosexuality is more neutral than LGBT, which carries a lot of political and social baggage and best for Muslims to avoid, you know, using LGBT as a term, especially uh, internally. Right. Because it it brings a lot of um, baggage and a lot of uh, assumptions with it that uh, that, you know, we would need to vet and to to be uh, critical of. So homosexuality in contemporary parlance, it usually refers to feelings of romantic and or sexual attraction to member members of one's own sex. That's one element of it. Another element, engaging in, on the basis of these feelings, engaging in romantic relationships and or sexual behavior with members of one's own sex. So we saw this before, action, or attractions and desires, and then behavior that follows thereupon. And then third, adopting a personal and social identity based on such feelings and or relationships and act. So these are three things which again, traditionally for us as Muslims and also in the West have been separate. Your attractions are one thing, you're not a specific category of human beings just because you might feel a particular attraction, even if you act on it, it's an act you do not something you are. But in the contemporary paradigm, all of those are fused together, you know, uh, inextricably. You're attracted, you act upon it, and that is who you are. It's the basis of your identity. So we have to be very careful as Muslims not to take on terminology, which brings on board with it this inextricability, because we have to keep these separate. Otherwise, you know, Islam makes no sense, and we cannot operationalize our categories of thought or our sharia categories if we uh, do that. So modern culture, again, it amalgamates these three into one. I am gay lesbian queer right it's something that I am not something that I feel not something that I do this is again very new and culturally specific to the modern west homosexual sentiment and behavior is widely attested or widely attested in past societies but were never taken as an identity this is very particular to the current cultural moment right and is therefore contingent upon that moment i.e. it was something that you did, not something that you were. Again, that's a good take-home message, you know, like phrase to to remember, right? And then there's the elision of any meaningful distinction between, or or, sorry, the elision of any meaningful distinction between desires and actions is morally problematic. So eliding means to get rid of, right? When you say, well, just because I have a desire, I can act upon it. Well, if you apply that consistently, you're going to run to a lot of moral problems in very, uh, very quickly, right? So, of course, the Mere existence of a desire can never be a moral justification for acting upon it. We need other moral criteria brought to bear on it. For the contemporary post-sexual revolution West, what's the criterion? Consent. As long as you consent, no problem. For us as Muslims, that's never the criteria. Criteria is what, you know, when God and his messenger have upon something, it's not for believing or it's not for believing men or woman. When God and his messenger have on something to have a choice in the matter, right? That's our criteria. So we look to revelation to see what God has actually permitted and prohibited of various desires that we might have. Um, And so considering homosexuality a question of identity rather than a question of acts fundamentally alters the conversation. And this is very important because the modern West, right, just assumes that it is a question of identity and insists on treating it and speaking about it and conceptualizing it in that way. And, and, And therefore the deck is already stacked against anyone who's coming from a different paradigm, which says, no, 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 I'm just, I'm talking about specific acts. No, but those acts are core to who I am. So if you don't accept the acts and celebrate them in your mosque and in your community, then you are excluding me as an entire person. You're undermining me. You're excluding, you know, uh, uh, not recognizing my dignity and so forth. So we saw this before, right? Uh, modern Western culture, it separates these things, which should be and are by t- nature together, sex, reproduction, marriage, morality, and it also amalgamates desires, actions, and identities should be separate, and it puts them together. So again, this slide, you know, take a mental picture, keep that in mind. This is really the key to unpacking a lot of this very, you know, uh, complex issues that come up. You know, there's a very good prism to to unlock and untangle a lot of those knots. Um, also, and we talked about this, is it incorrectly separates IECs as free-floating variables: biological sex, you know, gender identity, expression, sexual orientation. We say no; those should be aligned. Okay, we understand that they might not be. Okay, and that's fine. A person's not morally responsible for what they don't have control over, but normatively, yes, they should be aligned, and we're not embarrassed to say that, um, while drawing a false equivalence between race, gender, and sexual identity or behavior and throwing, again, race, gender, and sexual LGBT all into one. You know, again, we talked about why this is problematic. Um, Okay, versus on the people of lot, we're just going to go through some of this very quickly, because someone might say, how can you have such a long talk on LGBT and not Talk about the verse in the Quran, right? (laughs)
0: Especially because recently they- These are usually the first go-to verses in for some Muslims when talking about this. You simply refer to the verses of the people of Lot. Uh, None of the preceding uh, discussion happens uh and I, I, sometimes it is relevant to just go to those verses i'm not saying you shouldn't do that but the, these are this is usually how it happens you just go straight to the verses those particular ones right. without right. any other context or considerations whatsoever so yeah. uh it's interesting you, you, you're doing it this way without a lot of complex historical depth uh right. and uh, theoretical discussions and as you've done so eloquently so yeah sorry to interrupt
1: okay all right and so we are almost there i do promise um all right so verses on the people of lot and again there has been some uh contest contestation of the meaning of these verses by certain you know uh secularly trained western academics muslim identifying western academics and uh, you know we'll read some of these verses and talk very briefly about it it's 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 very uh you know very thin but anyway um so so the People of Lot also mentioned the Bible is mentioned in at least nine different places in the Quran, totaling over 75 verses. So this story comes up over and over and over again, okay? Same-sex sexual relations between men, particularly in that story, were the emblematic sin of Lot's people, okay? The, so every prophet who came, you know, the, the, his people had a specific sin that they were known for, and this was the emblematic sin of the people of Lot. Other misdeeds are mentioned in a few verses, actually, I think just one, Right, but "quote unquote" approaching males with desire instead of females is the transgression that is mentioned most often and in greatest detail with respect to the people of Lot. Okay, revisionists I just mentioned they've tried to reinterpret the sin as one of rape or inhospitality to Lot's guests, and we'll see why this is basically you know nonsensical. Um, but the Quran repeatedly mentions the same-sex aspect of the acts, in particular, as the defining feature of their iniquitous nature. And it's very clear. For example, and mentioned Lot when he said to his people, do you commit iniquity, thachisha, such as none in creation have committed before you? Okay, what is this iniquity? Verily, you come with desire unto men instead of women. Nay, you are a people transgressing beyond bounds. Okay, end of story. But the only reply of his people was to say, turn them out from your town. Truly, they are people who keep themselves pure. And then it moves on. So it's not rape. It's not, you know, forcing. It's not... you come to men with desire instead of women. Like if that's not clear that what's being concentrated on here is the gender of the partner, I don't. I don't see how it could possibly be clearer. I mean, well,
0: maybe- I, I think there is. Without going into this, because this is very long, but uh, I, I personally, I think the reason is many of people who argue this are drawing on uh, Christian or, or Jewish uh, uh, interpretations of this story in, in Genesis in the Bible. Where the the, the rape th- theme is arguably there, and and they're simply reading the the chronic verses through the biblical story, which is actually in important respects different, although there are many similarities as well. So they're basically using uh, a kind of a gay hermeneutic has been used to justify homosexuality. Uh, biblically and 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 just basically i recognize exactly the same argument because i'm familiar with the biblical um, story and the attempts revisionist attempts to reinterpret it and they're basically copying and pasting that and using it for the quran the quran's narrative but as you say the quran's narrative does actually have that quite distinctive feature of you know that they turn to, to 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 males rather than females and that emphasis is not as much in the bible as it is in the quran so okay, it, they're, they're basically taking that narrative from Christ, uh, christian revisionism and using it for the quran in a very kind of wooden way without yeah. really attending to the 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 nuances and the details of the quranic version right. and that's
1: very interesting but also it's you know in mm-hmm. the christian jewish case it also is a case of modern you know, very contemporary reinterpretation right oh yeah I, thing, I don't think know, it, you know, i want right. to
0: stress i don't think it works for the bible either actually I, yeah, I'm, right. I'm not saying oh, you, oh it's just about raping the bible no, it's not. I, I think I think that 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 is a, a, a exegesis rather than exegesis. I mean, people are reading into it. Agenda, right. but nevertheless, it's even less plausible with the Quran if it ever was plausible with the Bible.
1: And there is also the story, and we'll see it, where the you know the angels come in the form of young men to the Lot's house, and then the people come after. So you could say, well, maybe they're kind of trying to force, but again, it's very, it's very. Um, and,
0: and then there, and then there's some extremely clear hadith, obviously, which are very right. specific about the act. So um, yes. it's pretty uh, uh, indisputable, I think. Hard it's, to get yeah. around, yeah. yeah.
1: So um, great. So the next verse, I'm not going to read it because it's too long. Uh, it's just to give context. But again, people will have these slides. You can go back and read it for yourself. Yeah. Um, for yourselves. We'll just go to these uh, last couple ones to round this off. And mention Lot when he said to his people, do you commit iniquity, fahisha with, wide, with eyes wide open? Do you indeed come with desire unto men instead of women? Nay, but you are people behaving foolishly. Okay, so again, very specific what the problem is with their behavior. And then in another, again, so that was uh, in Surat al-Naml, now Surat al-Ankabut, and mentioned Lot when he said to his people, you commit iniquity, the same word, fahisha, such as none in creation have committed before you. Do you indeed come unto men and cut off the road and practice evil deeds in your assembly? So here we get two other things, you know, the sort of highway robbery, and then other types of unspecified evil deeds that they practice in their assemblies, which scholars have speculated on right? Um, So here are some other sins, but we saw in all these other cases, it's like very specifically, you know, the same-sex nature of their act. The people, the reply of his people was but to say, bring upon us God's punishment if you are among the truthful. So they're quite haughty and sort of, you know, not very concerned that this might bring on God's punishment as if they're challenging him. And when our messengers, and I just mentioned the angels, came to Lot, he was anguished on their account and constrained from helping them. And he said, this is a trying day, and his people came hastening unto him. And before, they, and before that, they had been working evil deeds. He said, Lot said, oh, my people, these are my daughters. They are purer for you. So fear God and disgrace me not with respect to my guests. Is there not among you a right-minded man? Mm. They said, you know well what that we have no claim on your daughters. And indeed, you know what we want, i.e., your guests, your, guests, your male guests. Now, this is one of the, um, you know, uh, Verses that the the revisionists will point to to say, okay, well, look, this is the rape. You know, this is the implied rape scene. And you say, but wait a minute, but Lot's response is, these are my daughters, right? They're purer for you, right? So these are men. Here are my daughters. My daughters are women. What's the difference between the the guests and the daughters? It's their gender. And if you assume that these men want to rape the guests, it's not reasonable to think Lot is saying, well, oh, don't rape my guests because that's inhospitable, but rape my daughters instead, (laughs) you know? (laughs)
0: Doesn't make any right?
1: sense. I mean, if that were the case, so why does he? Why is he not blaming them for wanting to rape? Why would he say take my daughters instead? And then he says they're purer for you, and you don't say, well, you know, um, uh, don't rape somebody because it's not pure to rape someone. Like, just have consensual sex because it's more pure. Like that. That's not not how anyone talks. I mean, when he says they're purer for you, they're purer for you because you're men and they're women, and that's a pure act, right? Not this act with these men. It's it's, it's like. Super clear, but again, you know, leave it up to academics to kind of complicate. <laughs> right. um, and so, anyway, reinterpreting this as rape, right, in a classic is a classic example of anachronistically projecting contemporary notions onto the texts, such as this post sexual revolution fixation on consent as the only relevant criterion. It's so obvious. I mean, people say, well, wait a minute, uh, you know, it must be that there's a lack of consent here because that's the only I thing that I, makes I, sense I, to us. that's you know, the only crime that we could imagine is that there was just a lack of consent and therefore it must've been rape because don't we all know that consent is really what matters when it comes to sexual behavior. And I mean, this is like, this is, I mean, this is obviously just, you know, taking like literally the last three decades kind of, you know, a sexual measuring stick for sexual morality and just, Projecting it thousands of years into the past and reading it into a text where it clearly has nothing to do with it,
0: but yeah, uh, I mean, it's very interesting. Uh, John Boswell, the American Harvard uh, professor who uh, uh, um, wrote the, the the classic revisionist work uh, from a Christian point of view on this story in in the Bible um, in the eighties, I think. I mean, he sadly died of AIDS himself uh, subsequently, but um, he, he proposed that it was to do with rape and and so on. But his work was then, uh, as, as indeed um, is often the case, was critically assessed by biblical scholars and, and was found to be very wanting. And indeed, the top experts now in the biblical field, except that th- this passage, the Son of Gomorrah passage, the Lot passage and others do speak of homosexual acts, actually. Okay. Even though these own, these scholars themselves don't agree with the Bible. And I think Professor John Barton, who I've had the, the immense privilege of speaking to on my channel, Professor of Bible at Oxford University, one of the leading biblical scholars of the Old Testament, um, he, he, he has said this to me. He, he said, "No, the, the revisionist argument that it's about rape, it's not really is completely wrong. It's not based on the Hebrew text. It, it's it's rather than exegesis." Mm-hmm. But I, Professor John Barton, don't agree with the Bible anyway. Right. I mean, well, so, so, you know, and, and this, I and mean, in fact, the world's preeminent scholar in this field is not John Barton. There's a specialist in this area. I forget the the scholar's name. He's written the, the, the scholarly text is usually seen as the defining, uh, totally, clearly states the revisionist case has failed and the traditional understanding is correct. But this very author himself rejects, doesn't agree with the Bible, because they're very liberal, or they view the Bible as purely a human construct, like John Barton very publicly does. So, you know, the, the, the traditional reading is the correct one. But many Christians simply don't accept it anyway. They'll say, well, we don't agree with that. We we, we have our own views. We're modern people, we accept the LGBT agenda.
1: So that's a remarkable
0: irony that the traditional reading actually wins at the end of the day, but people still disregard it anyway.
1: (laughs) You know what I'd say, Paul? At least be honest. You know, they're being honest, they're saying, well, here's what the text says. We can't make it say what it doesn't say implausibly we might yeah. have wished it to say something different but it doesn't and we don't agree with okay we're not going to follow it but okay right. but don't try to like play games with what it actually says and this idea of like we can just read into it anything we want or yeah. that, that, that's it.
0: not plausible i mean i i know advocates say this you hear this on social media and so on, that a serious scholarship doesn't go along with that but serious scholarship, the individuals who write that will actually accept the gay agenda anyway because they are modern, enlightened Western people and, and part of the liberal but academy. They're, they're not really, committed they, to they the Bible. Will, they it. will accept that publicly. They will say, oh no, we support all these agendas even though the Bible correctly understood in its historical content is actually speaking of these acts. Yes, they were prohibited then, but today, as John Barber said to me, we live in a different world and therefore we can accept these acts. Right. That's what he argued. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's, the, he, uh, he's British, right? Yes. Yeah, I saw that actually, and I I remember that um, part oh, you of the remember, conversation. Yeah. You pushed them on that, yeah. And I and yeah, yeah I, that, did, yeah, I did because I've really actually
0: good. I've actually got the, got the book here. It's this. I mean, I won't go into the details now, but yeah. he he's very praising of of a, of a top uh, academic work written by an, an American evangelical scholar, which completely demolishes the revisionist argument. So, John Barton, how can you agree with this? Because he says that's brilliant scholarship, fantastic. What is your view? Oh, I accept gay marriage. How could you do that? Well, his understanding of scripture is very different from the evangelical scholar's understanding of scripture. It's a human product. Therefore, he is free, serenely free to ignore it in his own modern understanding of human relations.
1: And you know I mean saying that the Quran is a human product that's you not You can't available. do that Islamically. Islamically you and, absolutely
0: can't do yeah. that with the Quran. The Quran I mean, is even a revisionist, places. yeah, even a
1: revisionist would never say that because that would just take you out of the fold of Islam. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's, even you know, not it, a Muslim. It, anymore.
0: in Islam it's locked down. You can't play that game with the holy Spirit of right. Islam. <laughs> Otherwise you would be you'd be out of the fold of Islam instantly.
1: Right, the, the Quran being the word of God is sort of definitional of, of Islam and you know a lot of modern Christian ages don't yeah, really yeah. get that, and they kind of say, Why are you guys a lot of Christian that? scholars yeah. do
0: that? They have a very, very different understanding because the Bible is a library of books written by many different people, and the right. historical critical understanding means you can, you know, you can say, Well, this is just a human opinion, maybe this is revelation, it's much more complicated.
1: Right. And so, what Muslim revisionists will do, because they don't have the option of saying, Well, it's just a human text, they'll say, Well, of course it's the word of God, but nevertheless, God spoke to people, you know, according to their Near Eastern context, and they'll try to historicize. I mean, of course, you know, we do take historical context into consideration. It's part of the Sharia, but there are very specific ways of doing that. You can't just do it like, you know, Yes. you know, with no kind of dawabit or, um, you know, parameters. And, and one of these scholars actually who has been pushing, you know, the, this kind of revisionist line for a long time, you know, you might say, well, okay, if there's one thing that Muslims could never disagree on, it must be what? Tawheed, like, you know, the oneness of God, that's absolutely the most fundamental. You might say, well, maybe sexual behavior is pretty important, but like Tawheed is like, there's no Islam without that. Okay. Mm-hmm. This scholar has been pushing this. I just saw like a tweet. Uh, I don't know when he put it up, but it was just forwarded to me a few days ago, where he actually said polytheism is a derogatory term used by arrogant monotheists who don't understand that their own conception of God is, you know, influenced by their Near Eastern, you know, milieu, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, And they use it to derogate other people. And in uh, any way, these so-called polytheists—that's why I always say so-called polytheism, theism, and so-called monotheism—and in any case, these uh, the spirituality of these so-called polytheistic societies has a much better track record when it comes to diversity and tolerance than the monotheists. And so, I mean, at the end of the <laughs> day, so that's from. the We know region. where they're coming from. Yeah, and diversity and on every level that they are. You know, so you can see that you're going to play that game. Even tawhid itself.
0: Even tawhid is
1: monotheism. Re- you can yeah. just historicize it the same way
0: yeah yeah and that's very dangerous
1: i mean know. it's it's but anyway like okay fine at least you see clearly like all right no thank you <laughs> no thank you i mean how does that how are you even like how do you even identify as muslim anymore that doesn't make any sense at all so anyway um so yeah, sometimes it's good when things are stated that directly it allows you to see yeah. the, uh, the,
0: the, the experts are very clear the passage do say what people traditionally understood them to mean that that that's really beyond dispute now i think
1: yeah. And so I'll just put here so the um uh actually I forgot to hyperlink this, but it's hyperlinked in the resources. The the classic, you know, article on this uh is by uh, Mubin Vayat, who've you ha- you've had you've had on
0: here twice. He's an extraordinary individual, actually.
1: Yes, mashallah, very, very impressive. We yes. hats off, we all. Try to follow. I had way.
0: coffee with him in Chicago once. I, I well. heard about I, that. My <laughs> totally irrelevant boast, but I had met him. We actually sat down for a couple of hours and talked shop. It was utterly yes, delightful. he very much
1: enjoyed that. He told me so. Can Islam accommodate homosexual acts? Quranic revisionism, and the case of Scott Kugel. Scott Kugel is this person who wrote this book. You know, um, yes, on, yes. with this argument, um, he's not the author of the it's tweet. This that book I just I've about. Got, yeah, this yeah. is
0: a book by the notorious Scott. Kugel uh, right. book, which is uh, massively criticised, definitively criticised, many would say, by
1: Mobin Vaid. By Mubin and I mean, Mubin Vaid's article is is even, you know, um, uh, is, is uh, assigned in university classrooms, right? Because it's, it's yep. at that level. Really um, Scott Kugel was not the author of the tweet that I just mentioned where the person was- uh, I was wondering if he was. No, more. it's someone, it was another academic, but not yep. Scott Kugel. Just again, you know, we, we have to be fair. In our yeah. criticisms, if we critique, I'm
0: glad you clarified um, that because that was my assumption.
1: <laughs> a person for what he says, not not for something. Yeah. The verses on Qamlut, if People want to check them out. Here they are. Um, okay, building an Islamic framework very uh, quickly on homosexuality. Again, one can only judge a thing once it is properly conceived. So we realize the Western paradigm is just a totally different paradigm. It's not you know not yeah, something yeah. that's really compatible. So how do we as Muslims conceive of this? As I said, there's no single word for homosexuality in the sharia, right? Again, in the West also, it's a new word, because um, the sharia addresses what? It addresses acts, not desires, i.e. desires that are things that are beyond one's control, okay? Um, Islam does not categorize human beings on the basis of mere desires, sexual or other, i.e. a person does not come to does not come to be a particular thing or come to constitute a particular class of human beings, right, A discrete on the basis of mere desires and inclinations. Mm-hmm. Islam also does not place human beings into discrete identity categories on the basis of acts. Even if someone has a desire and is acting upon them, they're still not classified as a discrete, you know, um, uh, type of human being. They're just someone who's, you know, sharab al-khamr, is a drinker of wine, is someone who drinks wine. If you stop drinking wine, you're not sharab al-khamr. Right. If you're engaged in same-sex behavior, okay, maybe we'll, there's a term that describes your behavior. If you don't engage in it, there's no term that applies to you. Just because you might have the desire or may have uh, engaged in the act. Question: What is the best way to answer the question? What does Islam say
0: about? I, I know the answer. Before you tell us what the answer is, I have the answer. Watch this video.
1: Watch this video. Yeah, all the three and <laughs> whatever, whatever. That's the answer this. to that question. Watch this video. So what, so homosexuality, I hope people learn by now, what, that's a foreign term, I don't understand what it means, you know, we have to break it apart. So what, what do you mean by homosexuality question your terms always. So we have to distinguish between desires, acts and identity. Again, in Islam, these are all three separate things, they have three separate rulings, three separate considerations, three separate conversations, they're not just wrapped up into one. What are the implications of accepting a Western sexual identity framework? Again, we've already hit this home on this several times. The identity framework changes the discussion. It elides moral concerns, puts them completely to the side, and it frames the issue as one of social justice defined subjectively, as opposed to one of God's command, Allah's command, which is paramount, obviously for us as Muslims, and which itself embodies perfect justice. We cannot be more just than God. We cannot be more compassionate. He is ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, right? And when I say it changed the conversation, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was still common for people to say, LGBT didn't exist, by the way, we only homosexuality. I mean, the, the acronym, I think, came in the 90s. And people would say, what do, you th- what do you think of homosexuality? This was commonly asked in the 80s. And it was understood, again, the larger you know um, assumptions of the culture. It was understood that you were asking about the actions, right. and you were asking what was your moral opinion of them. It was understood that the question was asking about the morality of the actions, and most people would have said, "I think it's wrong." That that was like the normal thing to say in the '80s. Now it's not the word "homosexual" is not used. Asking where you stand on it is like unacceptable, right? We've replaced it now with LGBTQ. The reason why I say Muslims should avoid this term is because it is an identity term. I mean, it's, okay. it, it is inherently an identity term the way it's been used. So so the only question today, and it's not really a question because there's only one answer that you're, you can have is where do you stand on LGBT rights? So it went 30 years from, what do you think about the morality of a particular act to where do you stand on the civil rights of a discrete minority forget about what the acts might be at all it's just a question of do you believe in equality freedom and justice or are you a bigot who hates people i mean that that's how it's like that's the conversation today right and and this is a direct result of the identity paradigm you know primarily um so you know the last part of this then how can we build an islamic framework um how does the sharia classify sexual acts Well. There are halal and haram, so permissible and impermissible. That's the basic distinction in the sharia. What's halal? We've already seen this. A man and a woman bound by an Islamically valid contract. What's haram? All else we've seen that okay haram acts sexual acts are further divided into gross enormities which are called kaba'ir plural of kibira we saw kibira earlier kaba'ir is the plural so what are the gross enormities when it comes to sexual behavior there are two one is male female zina which is vaginal intercourse between a man and woman not married to each other okay or bound by a contract Um, and male male liwat sodomy I mean, specifically between two males. Between a man and a woman, it's also forbidden, but it's, you know, it, it's a different category between two men. So these two actions, Zina and Liwat, fornication and sodomy, are considered gross enormities. Um, and then you have other sexual acts, which are n- neither of these two, which are actually non-penetrative, and for that reason they don't reach the level of being sort of gross enormities although they are also forbidden and so this would include all non-penetrative forbidden sexual acts between members of the opposite sex members of the same sex just the whole gamut including uh, what's known as sihak which is a specific word um and it means grinding so literally female sort of genital grinding i.e. lesbian acts so all of these you know any type of non-penetrative uh, sexual act between other than a married men and women would be considered prohibited uh in gross enormities are penetrative intercourse between a man and a woman vaginal and male male penetrative uh intercourse uh the one that burger king uh you know is <laughs> celebrating with the whopper
0: Oh, i was trying to forget so, about that you just reminded me of, yeah, well, i'm never yeah. i'm never gonna be able to burger king again eat a hamburger there not that i do particularly i think yeah anyway
1: well Yeah. Anyway, so all of these things are called muharram li vatihi, which means all these acts are prohibited intrinsically, like for themselves. The acts themselves are prohibited, right? And then there are preludes to these prohibited sexual acts, such as, we've seen this before, touching, gazing, khalwa, being alone in an isolated environment, immodest dress, speech, and behavior. These are all considered muharram li They are prohibited on account of another, i.e. because they lead to that which is prohibited in and of itself, which are the sexual acts themselves, right? Okay, so that's done. The very last part of this, and I promise this the last part of this before we just finish with the uh, conclusions and then the resources, what about the subjective experience? And I said we would talk about this. And we've talked about it a little bit along the way, right? Someone who is a Muslim who says, I feel same-sex attractions. I'm not attracted to the other sex. I wish I were, but I'm not. And I can't just turn it on and off like a light switch. How do I live my life? Does Allah hate me? Am I a walking sin? Am I going to hell for these feelings, right? These are very important questions. And people who have these feelings, particularly same-sex desire, it's all thrown together. Qom lut, you know, the people of lut and fire and brimstone rain down upon them. Okay, but wait a minute. They were acting on it. You're not acting. Again, you're putting yourself with them because you're not distinguishing acts from behavior because that's part of the modern paradigm. You are seeing them all together. But that's not Islam. Islam sees the desires, one thing, the acts or another. Right. So there are Muslims, faithful Muslims, believing Muslims, practicing Muslims who experience unchosen same sex attractions and or gender dysphoria. This is real. This is statistically any, you know, certain uh, human population will have always a number of people who face these types of issues. And and Muslims, you know, are, are naive if they think this doesn't exist in the Muslim community. It absolutely does much more than people actually would think because it's obviously not talked about right? But this is a very real issue, all sorts of issues. Muslims are human beings like others. We have anger issues, drug addiction issues. We have issues of corruption and cheating and this and that, and all human virtues and vices to one degree or another are going to be present in any human community. We hope among Muslims, the virtues would be greater and the vices less than people who don't practice the religion of Islam, and that's generally the case. But nevertheless, we will always find, and this is not virtue and vice, it's just internal conditions. We said, again, very important, and I'm speaking, obviously, people watching this, some people watching this will be Muslims who are watching this because they themselves fall in this category, and they are concerned, how can I, you know, understand myself? What do I do with my religion? What do I do with my sexuality, right? Islam does not define or categorize people on the basis of internal feelings. You are not a specific subcategory of Muslim. You are a Muslim like anyone else, a brother, a sister, a member of your masjid, right, You are not this specific kind of separate category of human being because you feel this particular thing, right? And again, we must always distinguish between the feelings and the acts on one hand, and also between the acts and and advocacy, on the other, which we're starting to see, unfortunately, more and more of. Okay, Muslims struggling faithfully, and this is also for the, everyone who's listening, especially Muslims who are, maybe are not dealing with this. Muslims struggling faithfully with either SSA, so same-sex attractions, or GID, gender identity disorder or dysphoria. They should be, I said, struggling faithfully. Faithfully should be embraced and supported as mujahidun in the path of Allah. These are people struggling in the way of Allah. They are struggling with. Challenges and temptations, like we all have our challenges and temptations, and they are trying to live their lives according to the will of God and to submit, which is every Muslim struggle. And that is the straight struggle. <inaudible> guide us to the straight path. Every Muslim is, is trying to go the straight path. No pun, no, the pun is intended here. And there is a support group called Straight Struggle. You can just click on this hyperlink. Yeah. And it is a support group for Muslims who experience same-sex attractions or gender dysphoria, but who are committed to Islam and to living their lives.
0: It's a very good group. I, I do I do recommend it.
1: Right. And so they are coming together to support themselves and, and, and share resources and so on and so forth. And there's also a group based in the UK, Strong Support, Brother uh, Ali al Um, This started about two years ago, two or three years ago. So you have these two support groups. Yeah. Right. Now, Muslims, again, who don't deal with this should be aware these feelings cannot simply be turned on and off like a switch. Well, that's disgusting. Well, you know, like Allah gave you women. Well, OK, yes, that's right. But this goes much deeper than that. It's not simplistic in that way. And people again, we can't afford to have such a simplistic uh, you know, understanding, especially given our current context. If you speak that way, people say, OK, this person has no idea what this is even about right and and therefore anything you say on the issue is just going to sound you know ridiculous to many people including many sincere muslims by the way right again the gay identity paradigm is very very uh, you know this is a very critical thing that you know this the, the identity paradigm is a big trap it is a trap for the community because it again it 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 completely upends the moral discourse of the sharia it upends the moral discourse because now the sharia is is excluding people's core identities and undermining their dignity. This makes mincemeat of the sharia. Also, this can be a trap for the person, him or herself, right? You're born in the modern world. Okay, well, this is who I am. Islam would say, this is not who you are. You're a Muslim. You're a servant of God. You're a creature of God. You you don't have to identify with your sexual drives, even if you have exclusive same-sex desires. Okay, that's something about you. Something you have is not that doesn't define who you are at your core, right? Again, that's, I hope you can see now, this is a modern social construct of the contemporary West. This is not universal. It is not Islamic. Yesterday or today, this does not exist in other times and places. You won't find corresponding vocabulary in most other languages in the world, uh, you know, today or in the past. If it's today, only because they're translating from Western languages, because again, the dominance of the Western paradigm, right? But in, but if you or someone who has grown up in the West, then you have no other language except, oh my gosh, I feel this. I'm gay. This is who I am. You have no other language to process it because that's the only language that's available to you in the cultural sphere. And and this talk hopefully has has you know helped you to see that, wait a minute, that's a very contingent and specific way of construing this experience, right? And it can be construed other way. And these desires can be shuffled around and they can be given a different meaning in my life and they don't have to form the core of my identity and you know uh and it could in fact be very liberating not to have to carry around this burden that okay this is kind of who i am at my core right especially when you know it conflicts with acting on it conflicts with the religion this is puts you in a very difficult situation but you you know that identification don't take it for granted right now other Muslims who are hearing this don't say if someone comes to you with it, oh, well, don't identify it. Okay, easier said than done. When for 20, 30 years or whatever, 15 years, all you've been, you've grown up in this kind of identity paradigm. And if this has been your struggle and you've come to like see yourself as a quote unquote gay person, right, it's not just by hearing one talk or reading one article that you're going to just undo all of that. And, oh, okay, tomorrow I, I don't identify anymore. I have these desires, but they're just desires and not who I am and all. Okay, this takes time. This takes, You know, really a lot of thinking and redoing one's emotional and, you know, internal rearranging one's furniture and all of that. Don't expect someone to just like kind of, uh, you know, oh, well, Dr. Sharif said this was just Western contingent, whatever. So, you know, yeah, well, it's true. But again, we're all products of our time and place and we have to look at this realistically, right? I've mentioned before, and we're coming to this now. This is going to be the end. We have a wealth of resources in our community to help faithful strugglers on this path, right? Um, A beautiful article that I think all Muslims should read, especially in the West, whether they deal with this issue personally or not, it's called From a Same-Sex-Attracted Muslim, Between Denial of Reality and Distortion of Religion, beautiful piece written by Brother Yusuf, who has been the, um, yes, I think it's been published in there as well, yes.
0: It it is, it's it's Sex Matters, Love, Marriage, and the Sunnah, um, that that essay, (laughs) isn't it? This book is also, I do recommend this generally for uh, general discussions of, of sex in the Islamic tradition, um, and of
1: course, Paul has it right at his fingertips, right? Every relevant cool. book, you know, Truman and every everything I've mentioned. Where's your Where's your McIntyre? I didn't see it after virtue. Of
0: course. Oh, course Right doing. there, okay, right there. I have two. All right, um, <laughs> brother Yusuf he revised it. Anyway, sorry, carry
1: on. Brother Yusuf has been <laughs> the uh, has been the mon- moderator of the Straight Struggle Support Group <clears> for like twenty years. Yeah, and he wrote this very beautiful article. And then a game changer, in my opinion, is a way beyond the rainbow podcast, Brother Wahid Jensen, 88 episodes, 88 episodes wow. deals with this topic from every possible conceivable angle that you can think of. Um, psychological, you know, spiritual, social, personal, family, community, imams. I mean, uh, same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, marriage. I mean, everything, 88 episodes, um, and and I'll, I'll show you a little bit more of the details in a second on that, right? Um, some questions we won't be able to deal with these. Distinguishing being gay, so that's the identity paradigm, from having same-sex attractions. We've talked about this. Where does homosexuality or same-sex attractions come from? I refer you to episodes seven and eight of the podcast, uh, Way Beyond the Rainbow um, the brother goes into a great detail and all of the research that's been done on this, what it says, and what it doesn't say. so I won't repeat any of that here. Um, can homosexual homosexuality be quote unquote, cured or overcome? Again, very murky and fraught question that cannot be answered. Um, you know, overcome. It depends what one means by that cured i mean again uh you can find answers to that in that podcast can someone with same-sex attractions ever hope to marry islamically i.e to an opposite sex partner have a family some perhaps some perhaps not again you know this is a big question and there are several episodes dedicated to this in the podcast so i refer to just that. just
0: on that I, I know it's coming to the end but just on that on the very question um it's quite interesting that I, I was I, I once read um an article by a a uh, uh, quite a respected gay journalist, actually, who said there's big, it's the big secret of, of the gay community, um, is that most gay men can actually function heterosexually, and mm-hmm. um, because it's it, it's it's relatively uncommon to have people who are 100% gay. There's always, you know, m- most gay men can, if they wished function heterosexually and of course if the, the most famous example that'd be oscar wilde who actually mm-hmm. had a family he was married and had children he mm-hmm. could function heterosexually although he was gay uh, so people forget that and think well, if i'm if, if a person is gay that is their whole identity and their whole right. possible expression of sexuality is usually not actually um and i, I, I there are people who, who i know who who identifies gay, but I know that they are they have a heterosexual component because they told me they do, but right. they don't identify that way. So this is very, very true. Um, it's quite so in a different age, many of these people would have married perhaps mm-hmm. and had children. Uh, but in today's age, they don't because they don't have to. Yep. That pressure they
1: would have them. married, had children, maybe had these desires yeah. if they were exactly. pious, they would have respected. They could function they as, as,
0: as, as heterosexuals. Played yeah. around
1: on the side, but it was not who they were, you know. Okay. Um, but today you're told if you feel like one drop of like, you know, you're attracted to someone, okay, well then you're just a closet homosexual and that's who yeah, you okay. are and you're denying your well, you're bisexual
0: and, your and, or, or, and you must express both. So, you know, this, the whole thing has been configured very differently then. It didn't have right. to be this way, but as, as you repeatedly says, a very historically contingent and recent right. development in just one part of the world, the West, which because of its p- geopolitical power now is hegemonic over the planet. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, five minutes ago, in historical time, it wasn't. It was very different.
1: Absolutely, yep. And again, that goes back to, again. The identity paradigm is absolutely yeah. it's the key to all of this. I mean, it's it really explains you know every everything that we that we see. Um, how best to deal with individuals who experience SSA in our communities, families, etc. Again, all of this is you know very. Um, uh, uh, dealt with in great detail in the podcast, especially season five. Season five, Brother Mubin Vayed is on four, I think, four different oh, really? epi- episodes. Oh, yeah. um, Imam Dawood Walid is on, Sheikh Mustafa Omar is on, who's done great work on, on this on this issue and has researched a lot into uh, same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria. He's spoken very eloquently. Um, so a lot of, you know, the sort of well-known uh, scholars in the West mm. um, and thinkers have um, are actually, you know, share their experiences on this. So again, I won't repeat here because we we don't have time. And again, you you know, I can refer you to the podcast. How best to deal with non-Muslim colleagues, classmates, et cetera, when it comes to this issue. Again, uh, I think the episodes, particularly with Sheikh Mustafa Omar, really goes into the details. And also, you know, people ask, well, what about pronouns at work? And I have to, you know, he goes into all of this. Sheikh Mustafa Omar, if you go to the the, um, uh, uh, episodes that he does. How should Muslims deal with the cultural and political pressures stemming from this issue in the public square, particularly in the West? Um, I refer you again to uh, Brother Mubin Viad's uh, recent article from this January, Where the Rainbow Ends, American Muslims in Ajib. Mubeen,
0: and the, uh, came on Blogging Theology to discuss that article. In, yes. So you can see the video or read the article.
1: Exactly. Or both.
0: <laughs> or both.
1: Right. Okay. Now we're just wrap, wrapping up. Alhamdulillah, we're almost at the, at the end. Um, so... Towards principles, I have two slides here, and this is basically just a wrap up. You know, the take home message from the, from the entire evening or morning or wherever you are in the world. Um, so, what do we need to do as a community if we want to, I think, um, deal with this issue effectively in an just, compassionate, and in, in, in correct way? We need to strongly and confidently establish. Um, our Islamic gender and sexuality paradigm is very different from the contemporary Western one. We believe in gender essentialism. We believe in the gender binary. We're heteronormative. I mean, it's all of these terrible words that you've been told are, are like from the devil. You know, we deconstruct that. All that is, That's all concocted vocabulary, right? And, and we go to the ma'ani, we go to the meanings and we look at the wisdom of the legislation of our creator and we understand it and we uh, establish it uh, 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 you know the gender and sexuality paradigm, right? So again, gender is binary. Gender differences are real and God-given. Again, these are just take-home messages. Sexual expression is legitimate only in the context of marriage, which is by definition heterosexual. Um, act. We should also critique and deconstruct, as we've tried to do, Paul and I, uh, in this uh, uh, podcast. We should actively crit- critique and de- deconstruct west the Western paradigm post-sexual revolution and show what is wrong with it because it's harmful to people it harm. it's not just because muslims don't like it 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 harms people right it leads people to destructive behaviors it leads them to sexual chaos and not just in the realm of homosexuality i mean you know just even heterosexual sex is a mess in the west today marriage is a mess partnering is a mess the sexual marketplace is a disaster i mean there's the, the, the 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 uh Repercussions and the fallout of the sexual revolution. No one wants to talk about it because it would strike at their core ideological and moral commitments. We but still but have it, people who grew up on the, drinking the milk of the sexual yeah. revolution who are adults today, and they're not willing to, you know, to, to fundamentally question their basic assumptions that they've taught, made them enlightened modern people. Uh, you know, uh, post '60s. And and we're going to continue to pay the price as long as that's the case. I'm sorry, Paul. You were going to no, say no, no. I
0: interrupted you. No, I was, I was going to say that there's also the geopolitical uh, position here that the uh, before there was Western colonialism, it was perhaps economic, and then it was political, then it was military. Military, but today Western colonialism, in my view, is heavily ideological. They can have the other things as well, of course, but it has as a new virulent form of ideological colonization. Where like you you mentioned the tweets, where the American Government yep, is tweeting right. uh, the, the Muslim world, which is considered highly provocative, of course, uh, by, the, <laughs> by by many Muslim world. And this this is a new form of colonialism, which is which is this LGBT colonialism, which is non negotiable. So the rest of the world must convert, submit, obey unconditionally to the latest uh, Western colonial uh, project, which is being which eight, is changing all, all the time. By the way, it's always, this is why don't know it's, time... it's so tiresome, isn't it? It's always it's always changing, you know. How much more? Because Islam, as I repeatedly say, is based on the stability of God's revelation to humankind and is not constantly having to reinvent itself. Um, So it's a sure anchor or a rope, uh, as you put it earlier on, for people to hold on to. Um, But this is, I think, a manifestation of neo colonialism, where the rest of the world is expected to come into line with Western interests and ideas and ideologies as a matter of principle, because the West knows best. It always has and always will do. That's Absolutely. It, which is a huge arrogance and a form of imperialism itself, of course.
1: Yep, I agree with you 100%. And ironically, it's a lot of these kind of you know, people within the academy or some of these sort of more left-leaning spaces who talk talk of colonialism and neocolonialism and post-colonialism, but they're also very heavily invested in kind of pushing this particular narrative. And it's like, isn't it obvious to you that this is just, you know, you talk about Victorian morality being brought into the Muslim world by British colonialism in the nineteenth century? Okay, yes, that's true. But you're doing the same thing now in the twenty-first century. Exactly and the
0: same thing, because yeah, these ideologies were born in in Britain and America and Germany and France. Absolutely, and it's exactly the same place. And the, the the movement of influence and power and is exactly the same movement from one place to another. It's all the same thing, but it's just a different guise, a different different dress.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, rejection. So we talked about this a lot, again, a take-home message, rejection of the sexual identity paradigm. Uh, we must once again separate desire from action from identity. These are three separate things, just like race, gender, and sexual behavior. Those are three separate things, right? Desire, action, and identity separate. We have to separate these. And we also have to bring back together sex, reproduction, marriage, morality, put those together, okay? Terminological Terminological implications. We should avoid identity-laden vocabulary like gay, LGBT. Right? These are heavily um, uh, identity-laden terms. Or dignifying "quote unquote" who people are. Well, who are people? Right? They're not their sexuality. Especially as a Muslim, we dignify people as Muslims. Right? So all this language about you know dignifying who people are. Right? Gay. Uh, you know, and using sort of identity voc- identi- You know, vocabulary that's laden with identity. Um, implications, uh, especially, you know, again, when we deal with the outside society, you should try to be careful of your vocabulary you use, but you have to negotiate. But inside the Muslim community, these are not terms that we should be using, which is why at the top beginning of this talk, I put LGBTQ in quotation marks, because it's not a term that I, as a Muslim speaker, am, you know, and and using with a, a, an audience, you know, um, whether Muslim audience, probably majority Muslim, but also non-Muslim audience, right? It's It's a term that I think needs to be Problematized, right? And so that's why I put it in in quotes, right? We should use descriptive terms instead, in adjectives, not nouns. So someone has homosexual feelings, experiences same-sex desires. Very different from saying they are gay. And even in the medical field, they say so and so, you know, has. Uh, what did it say? Has diabetes. They stop saying so and so is a diabetic. I mean, they've they've shifted that's, in medical, that's, right? That's, yeah, yeah. yeah, they shifted because they, you are a diabetic. I'm I'm defining you according to your illness. No, you are. A ex-person and you have diabetes, but you're not a diabetic, right? So we should also be, you know, uh, um, sensitive to that language use. I say no gay exceptionalism, either positive or negative. What do I mean by this? So pushing acceptance of LGBT acts, acts, in an Islamic environment, in an Islamic environment, like schools, mosques, communities, and so forth, is just as unacceptable as pushing alcohol, zina, or anything else that's forbidden by the religion. There's no exception here, because again, we're not tying this to identity. Only when you tie it to identity do you have to see you know, uh, that, uh, right? And you see this also in the current uh, society. For example, I was at a university once, and they are the gay pride student group. They were having a dance, right? And the advertisement for the dance, the poster was, you know, come to this pride dance, whatever, Saturday. And the picture on it was a drawing. It wasn't like a photograph. It was like art deco figures, like two men, completely naked dancing. And the picture showed everything right down to like, you know, the very bottom of the groin, as far as you could go possibly, you know, without showing like the organ. So, I mean, clearly the people are meant to be shown like dancing naked. And I think if that were just any other student group, like the Latino club or the you know whatever or the dance club and they showed like a man and a woman dancing who were like naked on the poster you'd be like what like what kind of dance is this like why are they why are are the people naked on the poster right you wouldn't wouldn't be considered acceptable but if it's a pride parade or like an LGBT dance uh, oh well that's perfectly like you know there's like an exceptionalism here that okay yeah you can have very provocative or kind of Images that would otherwise be considered lewd and inappropriate, but because, you know, you're basically defining your identity by this. Well, we're not going to say anything. And so there's kind of an exceptionalism. So we should not accept that as as Muslims. Right. We have a moral standard and we stick to that at the same time. So there's no like positive gay exceptionalism, but also not negative. So, again, I say this to Muslims of probably a more traditional bent or people who they consider themselves like, okay, well, we're firm and hardcore on this issue. Be careful. Right as I said before, you might be more uh, more um, impacted by the modern Western paradigm than you yourself imagine. Merely having and faithfully struggling with same-sex desires or you know, gender identity issues also does not merit any particular stigma or singling out. Someone comes to you, you're a friend, I've known you for so long, I have this big thing I want to you know, share with you, it's so difficult for me, you don't just, oh, that's, ugh, go away. Ugh. No, this person's coming to made themselves very vulnerable. You help them, you embrace them, you support them, right? And you don't specifically stigmatize them for something that they don't, you know, did not bring upon themselves and are not morally responsible for, right? We're not talking about people who are pushing the actions or advocating. We're talking about someone who feels a desire and is struggling with it, right? We don't have a particular, you know, sort of a uh, particular A stigma or singling out for this, or say, oh, that's the gay brother, whatever. No, gay brother. Okay, now you're a Western, modern Western. Don't tell me you're a traditional Muslim and you say gay Muslim. Well, what do you mean gay? Say that in Arabic. Say, tell me that in classical Arabic. I don't have a word for it. I don't have a word for gay. I don't. There's no word that covers, you know, identifying a person based on sexual feelings. It doesn't exist. I can only name people who are doing things or gender, male, female, so forth. Okay. All right. Balancing individual and community subjective feelings versus objective truths we talked about this you know the objective right and wrong the objective nature of of acts and how allah has defined them and legislated according to them, and the subjective feelings of people who are facing these desires right so as i said before individuals dealing with same-sex attraction or gender identity issues should be supported in their efforts to realize their purpose as muslims and live their lives in submission to allah and his deen again go back to that you know article by brother yusuf um you know uh Uh, from a same-sex attracted Muslim between uh, distorting reality and um, denying reality and distorting religion, okay? So, we should have private support and consultation to people who deal with these issues, right? Someone comes to you, they should be able to go to an imam, to their parents, to trusted individuals, right? Like with any other problem they might have and need support, they should be able to find it within supportive and compassionate and loving communities, right? But this is private. Like if I have a drinking issue or anything else, right? I'm going to go and speak about it private. I'm not just going to come in and wear it on my shirt and and sort of set up a table at the mosque. That's a very different thing, right? So private support and consultation, people should have people within the community to turn to, right? As opposed to public quote unquote accommodation or inclusion. Again, I put these in, in quotes because these are buzzwords, accommodation, inclusion, right? They sound very nice, but they mean something very specific, which is not acceptable uh, given our moral framework as Muslims, right? Defiant activist types within the community should not be allowed to disrupt Islamic spaces or impose their will on the community. Again, no exceptionalism here. You want to come to the Eid celebration and set up a wine table, you're not, that's not going to be tolerated. You drink on your own time. That's your own business. You don't come and push it on the community. No exceptionalism when it comes to sexual behavior that is uh, prohibited by the religion. Supporting the faithful struggler. We've done this show empathy and understanding for what is often a very difficult and emotionally taxing issue. Support the person in general, spiritual in other ways, mentorship, general advice, listening ear, shoulder to cry on, right? But also, again, this is someone who comes to you privately, know your limits. You are not a spiritual guide. You're not a professional psychologist. It's a deep issue, and you don't know the details of it. So what? Direct them to resources, such as all the resources we have in our community, such as Away Beyond the Rainbow, podcasts, and these other resources, and maybe offer to discuss. But know your pay grade, as Paul said earlier. (laughs) Don't go beyond your pay grade. And then finally, maintaining the straight path, clarity, compassion, conviction, the three Cs. You know, We've come up with this in some other groups, right? You are not more merciful than Allah, right? So people say, we need to be compassionate. Of course we do. And we are, compassion, true compassion is guiding to the truth and what pleases the creator. This is what is gonna be best for people in this world and in the next, this is true compassion. Compassion is not to usurp the place of God, overrule his legislation because you know better, right? This is something that people who, you know, they come with this argument from compassion and justice. You're not more compassionate and, justice and just than Allah. He is Al-Adl, he is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, and none of us can claim those titles for ourselves. Be humble and kind, but never apologetic about Islamic beliefs, right? We're not apologetic. Islam is clear. It's from the creator. It's the birthright of every human being to know about it, to be told and to be invited to it and Allah guides whom he wills, it's not in our hands, right? Islamic teachings, very important take-home message, and this is the last one, Islamic teachings on sexual ethics are not an embarrassment or a problem. Listen, youth in the West, right? Islamic teachings on sexual ethics and gender and sexuality and the whole gamut are not an embarrassment or a problem. They are the only solution to our problems. They are the solution that the West itself desperately needs. And we all desperately need. And it is for us to realize that and take it on and articulate it in the best and most beautiful way. As we read in Ud'u ila sabili rabbika bil hikmati wal hasana bilatihi ahsan. Call to the way of your Lord with uh, hikmah, wisdom, and beautiful exhortation, and dispute with them in the best possible way. Right? This is the command that we have been uh, given. And on the, uh, on this, I will just, resources, we have actually seen them from a the same sex attracted Muslim. Uh, between denial of reality and distortion of religion, Brother Yusuf, please. I think everyone should read that. It's not very long, beautifully written. Mm. Way Beyond the Rainbow podcast. I'll show you some details on it uh, in the very last slide. Uh, we've seen Brother Mubin's piece: Can Islam accommodate homosexual acts? Quranic revisionism in the case of Scott Kugel. This is a masterly scholar, a masterly scholarly study. I mean, really, hats off. It's it's really extremely well done, and you will learn so much about Islam and about categories, and about the contingency, about sexual categories, even if you're not particularly interested in this article, it's a very uh, informative and educational read. So I actually like i think muslims should challenge themselves it's it's like 50 pages it's not short but it's really worth your time you'll gain I, a lot actually
0: uh, I, I agree with yeah. every I, I agree with your assessment there absolutely
1: yeah absolutely and the male is not like the female from the quran yeah. we saw that islam and gender nonconformity. also again brother mubin Fayyad right he's almost single-handedly carrying this you know yeah. has been carrying this burden for the past you know five six years may allah bless him um muslim matters 2017 that was part 1 part 2 was co-authored between brother Mubin Vaid and brother Wahid Johnson of yeah, the Away yeah. Beyond the Rainbow podcast this is an 85 page study based on 150 or 60 sources right it's a massive massive study on transgenderism the history of it the contemporary scene in the west also muslim rulings on it okay so anything you want to know about transgenderism these two articles are key Um, Foundational articles on gender, the family and sexuality by Sheikh Abdul-Hakim Murad, one of our treasures in the West, has also been a guest on this podcast before. Um, Three of his articles, they're mostly quite old. Boys Will Be Boys, Gender Identity Issues, Islam, Erigare and the Retrieval of Gender, Fall of the Family. All of them very, very insightful, incredibly eloquent, as we know from Sheikh Abdul-Hakim, mashallah, always very insightful and extremely eloquent. So these, I think, are, again, somewhat dated, but uh, they're still relevant. And I think foundational for any Muslim in inter intra-Muslim discussion on uh gender and sexuality issues in general and homosexuality, of course, in particular. And then this last resource, Islam and LGBT issues, reading material, Muhammad Tons of all of these resources and a lot more are on mm-hmm. this particular um, website. And then finally, a just uh, you know, because I've said uh talked about this away beyond the rainbow, I think it is a game changer. Um, it, it is very easy to critique a religious community by saying you're stuck in the Middle Ages, you're stuck in your books, you have no idea what's going on, or you're all just heteronormative and you don't understand our position. I.e., we who, you know, experience same-sex attractions. This is cannot be the case here, right? This brother is coming from that inside perspective. He is a uh, doctor and a medical researcher. He knows what he's doing. It's extremely well. Uh, extremely well researched, extremely well documented, and very interesting, and a lot of also guests and things like that. So Away Beyond the Rainbow is a podcast series. This is the you know, kind of uh, tagline discussing the everyday struggles of Muslims with same-sex attractions, SSA, and gender dysphoria, who want to live a life true to Allah and Islam. This podcast series is a safe space for Muslims who struggle with SSA, as well as Parents, family members, friends, imams, chaplains, community leaders, and the community at large. It is separated into five seasons. Season one tackles topics, just to give you an idea, shame, vulnerability, self-compassion, identity, so on and so forth. Okay, I won't read everything because it's season two, tackles the spiritual dimensions related to this particular struggle. Right? How can people understand the spiritual dimensions of this particular struggle, every struggle, but this particular one, from the wisdom of hardships and tribulations, attachments and surrender, as well as gifts and divine openings, futuhat, ilahiya, to the struggle with temptations and desires, sin and repentance, as well as the story of the people of Lut and of many of the other prophets whose stories are relevant to every struggle, including this particular struggle. Season three focuses on the importance of support systems and social connections Um, and answers frequently asked questions when it comes to friendships and support groups. The season also tackles in-depth topics of marriage and celibacy, i.e. for people who experience same-sex attractions, as well as marital intimacy and sex, right? So again, it's completely comprehensive. Season four, dedicated to healing and recovery work, tackles foundational topics relevant to the healing journey. And this is actually relevant to people who don't even experience same-sex attractions, just general, you know. Complex trauma, he takes a lot from the sort of contemporary psychological perspectives, but from an you know, Islamic uh, angle. Emotional attachments, dependency and codependency, um, and then, you know, uh, sexual compulsions and addictions, as well as sexual abuse. So these are things that are unfortunately relevant to a lot of Muslims, you know, have experienced sexual abuse, whether they experience, you know, same-sex attractions or not. Uh, sexual compulsions and addictions, there are, I think, four episodes on masturbation, pornography addictions, and again, unfortunately, given the state of current technology and so forth, many, many Muslims, I mean, we're not, uh, uh, we are not immune to these struggles, and many Muslims, quite apart from same-sex attraction, deal with, you know, uh, issues of sexual compulsion, issues of pornography, addiction, and so forth, Um, and and so you can also find very uh, um, beneficial things here, and then the last season addresses the wider community and focuses on relevant socio-political themes such as revisionist movements. So again, you know, uh, Brother Mubin does the whole takedown of the revisionist, you know, uh, arguments based on his work, uh, shutting out perspectives, gender dysphoria and transgenderism, and also topics that are relevant for parents and family members, i.e. Muslims who have same-sex attraction or gender identity issues, for spouses, teachers, imams, and community leaders. So completely comprehensive and again, a lot of Muslim kind of personalities have come. There are also personal stories, personal stories scattered throughout the podcast. A sister, a Muslim sister who uh, left a same sex marriage to come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, and other such stories that are uh, very interesting and not really what you hear every day in the kind of barrage of kind of pro LGBT messaging that we are uh, subjected to. So, Akulu Astaghfirullah and I thank everyone uh for uh your time and attention. I think Brother Paul, especially everyone else can stop and start, but you've been sitting here for I think oh, it's coming up on four hours now. And I know you've been traveling.
0: Oh, four hours, gosh.
1: And yeah. I imagine this must be the absolute longest episode you've had.
0: Oh, this is a record breaker. This is a record breaker, to be sure. <laughs>
1: I'm very sorry to go on and on and on. I think it's an important topic. I hope we've...
0: Yeah, I agree. Before we recorded this, we discussed whether or not we should cut it up into pieces and stuff. And we decided, no, it's best to keep it in, 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 as the unity and the integrity of one episode. And even though it is very long, I, I think there's value in that. And hopefully we will have timestamps underneath it as well, uh, as well as the slides, which will be accessible. Um, so it, it, it won't necessarily have to be digested in one large go. Right.
1: Okay. Well, thank you very, very much, Paul. You're doing excellent work. I mean, Blogging Theology is an amazing resource. Um, For people who are just new to Blogging Theology, I really strongly encourage you to check out. I mean, Paul is indefatigable. It's (laughs) unbelievable that literally almost every single day, I think, you know, he has a new episode out. And uh, very often, uh, he's discussing deep works with authors that require him to have
0: read these works
1: you know i mean it's not right. just like it's, you know, it's
0: not easy it's not easy yeah. but it, he invited me to talk
1: yeah. i've been you know running my mouth for four hours but like very usually i mean he had me on before he read my book and other people and as you've seen every time someone mentions a book i don't know how you do it he just doesn't even get up from his chair reaches <laughs> oh here's the book you're talking about every book you mention is like at his fingertips so there's something uh, no, you know, not, not uh, spiritual i think you know here some divine openings may allah bless you paul um, we're we're very happy to uh, to have you among us. You're you're a great great asset to our community, and, and uh, uh, yeah, may Allah may Allah bless you, and and and, uh, and everyone who uh, watches your channel and benefits from your channel. And uh, I'll just end as we uh, normally do. Anything that I have said that is right and true is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we thank him for that. All truth and goodness come from the only true uh, Allah, is the haq, the truth itself and, and good and beauty itself. And anything that is wrong or inaccurate um, it comes from me and from me alone. And I ask your forgiveness as an audience, as well as Allah's forgiveness for anything that I said that it might've been wrong. I hope I was not, did not say anything that anyone might've found offensive. It was not my uh, in- intention to, um, I think in the larger context of what's being said, I tried to hit everything from the different angles to make exactly clear what I'm saying, and what I'm not saying. These are difficult issues. Um, I, I may help all Muslims deal, uh, whether it's dealing again with society and uh, uh, external pressures, or whether it's dealing with this issue inside your own heart or within your own family or community. Um, th- this is not going to go away anytime soon. And this is something that we do have to know how to deal with properly and have mature conversations about, principled conversations, but conversations that also the human element is involved. And we understand people are very confused in this time, and we should also be, you know, without letting, again, this sort of activist type run amok, but be gentle with people. People have been hearing one narrative their entire lives right it, it it can take some time and some effort and some coaxing to kind of get them to especially if they're dealing with that you know just be patient with people and make dua for people and may allah guide all of us to what is best and what pleases him uh, uh wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Shohr, uh, for your uh, outstanding work, presentation, uh, and uh, beautiful slides. And this is, is going to be a, a great resource, I'm certain, for uh, many people in the months, maybe the years to come, for a, a, a very comprehensive, compassionate, accurate, faithful um, uh, exposition on on the whole question of Islam and the LGBT question gender sexuality morality and identity so thank you very much indeed for all your extraordinary efforts in this regard and um until next time
1: okay inshallah
0: As-salamu